A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Reminder, we are reading The Blade Itself by Joe Abercrombie. Hey there, this is Cross. Hey there, this is Pedro. Our Words in Whiskey, a podcast for veteran novice readers like we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. It has, I don't know how much of it has come out like in our actual recordings, but we use the hey there line as our spike indicator on our recording to make sure that our recording levels are good. And I feel like it's kind of permeated into some of our other podcasting friends once in a while. It, it has made it. It has made it into every podcast that we have, quote, on network, quote, as the sort of test pattern now is the, hey there, this is cross shit. Catacomb party, that's what this is what Mathar does. That's what Josh does is a bit. All the books and baddies do that as well as their bit, which is so funny. So uh, very Aaron excited. To do At the it. point that this episode comes out, books and baddies is live. Yeah, that's exciting. That came out that's a couple days exciting. ago, right? Yesterday. Yesterday. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the two-year anniversary of, of doing that episode. But we have so much else to do today that I want to move into kind of our main, our main field topic here. We'll talk about it a little bit when we get into the, the middle of the episode. What? We are both very excited to have Books and Baddies be finally out in the open for everyone to hear. We've been working on this behind the scenes for a very long time. I have a very small hand in it. I, I don't want to take any credit. There are some amazing people on that show that have put in a ton of work. And I'm so glad that everybody gets to see the fruits of all their labors. Yes, it is very exciting. It's been a two-year journey since we released that original romance episode to this point. So to finally be kind of on the cusp of releasing is is a lot. It went through like, you know, a period of time where we didn't really talk about it. And like six months later, we talked about like maybe doing a reunion episode. And then it was like maybe instead of an episode, it's its own show. Then we developed it. We practiced. We recorded a ton of practice episodes. The baddies would tell you that I made them maybe record too many episodes. We sat on a bunch of them. We edited a bunch. We figured out the format. And it's it's very exciting. So at this point you'll you'll be able to go listen to them their website is booksandbaddies.show which is super exciting but for all of you of whom are brand new to our podcast listening to this because it's the blade itself we're we're gonna get to that today is our first episode talking about joe abercrombie's first law and also the first set of chapters of the blade itself this week we're going to be reading the end through the good man that's so fucking confusing uh, it's it's the beginning of the book through the good man <laughs> <laughs> the prologue the end through the good man yeah so yeah very excited pj with that a little cheers or we're taking a little shot at the beginning of this episode for starting the new series so christening cheers to you it. cheers to this christening, christening the, the episode pj what are you having a little bit of i have some larceny bourbon cool. 90, 92 proof small batch bourbon beautiful stuff. i've got reiki a sponsor not sponsor of the podcast <laughs> wonderful vodka Cheers. Cheers. All right. With that, let's kick it off. PJ, let's hear that quick overview. I am not. I, I wrote this and I'm not that prepared to read out loud. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, I wrote out a little sort of overview of uh, what we went through with each of the perspectives this week. So starting with Logan. 
Logan Ninefingers finds himself alone in the wilderness, having lost all his companions, calling upon the spirits who inform him that an old magus is looking for him. First of the Magi, Baez's apprentice, Malachus Kwai, running a fever and having lost most of his supplies, stumbles upon Logan's camp and helps direct him to Baez's location. After a long, dangerous journey, the pair barely make it to the outpost and potential safety is found in the arms of the Magi. Inquisitor Glockta has made a name for himself among the ranks of the Inquisition, having fallen hard from his status as a well-respected somebody after being captured and tortured himself by enemy ranks. His brutal, unconventional methods have earned him a place as the personal investigator and intimidator for the Archlector, focusing on high-ranking members of the Closed Council as well as their associates. Captain Jazal Dan Luthar... Suave nobleman and swindling drunkard has a strict training regimen ahead of his well-publicized and much-anticipated duel. One of his training mates, West, tasks him with keeping his sister company so he can attend a work obligation. After nearly abandoning the task due to an internal monologue rife with classism and misogyny, he finds himself tongue-tied and spellbound by West's beautiful sister. Speaking of West... During Jazal's afternoon outing with his sister, West finds himself standing post at a meeting hall where petitioners make their case for a hearing with the king. The Lord Chamberlain Fortis Dan Hoff is irritable and eager to wrap up the day's meetings in the uncomfortable room and is quick to dismiss most of the citizens, which make for some close calls against West uh, when he speaks out at the cruelty and injustice on display. West's internal monologue is repeated back to him out loud by the emissary of the great Baez, and his grueling day in the heat eventually draws to a close. Excellent. So good. PJ, how did you feel overall about this week's reading? Dude, this is such a cool story. I'm so fucking excited. This is so fucking good. This is so good. right up my alley. This is exactly what yeah. I wanted to read. Has anything like caught you off guard? Hmm. I was expecting more magic to be hmm. immediately on display because that's kind of what we've been exposed to as far as fantasy goes with Greenbone and with Mistborn. There's very flashy displays of magic right away in the st- series when we start reading it. And this is not that. Yeah, fair. Um, any Anything else that you're kind of either anticipating or looking forward to or can't wait to have more of just kind of off the bat? Well, this is a little bit of meta knowledge, I guess, that these are the four, at least the four primary perspectives. I don't know if there will be additional perspectives that we'll be exposed to, but as I understand, this is it, correct? I'm not going to answer nor not answer that question, okay. but these, this is the grouping of chapters that I chose was specific to give us the POVs that I want to take a, like a direct stab at and give us like a lot to talk about. So like, okay. you know, from a starting point perspective, we see all of these characters, they all interact with each other. They all appear. And to me, it made more sense to put the good man on this side of the chapters than the other side. So makes sense. Yeah. And I'm very excited that we have this seemingly very large spread out world as far as like it seems. And maybe that's just because Logan's so far away from everybody else, but at least until 
until Glockta and West and Jazal kind of meet up, I assumed we would go quite a ways before actually having our perspectives intermix. So that was a, that was a fun surprise. Yeah, it is. It is definitely a fun surprise. There's there's so much that's so captivating in the story, PJ, that I can't wait for us to get to because it is. To me, it's nonstop joy ride. I mean, like I I know that we we talked about this in the car on the way to your wedding when we were originally kind of cycling through. But one of the things that you were shocked at off the bat is that it was so goddamn funny, and it is. It, it is, is so funny. It is. It is impossibly perfectly just oozing with humor in ways that no other book I've ever read does. It is. It is uniquely a combination of cynicism. And like self <laughs> self-effacing humor that just I don't know, it feels like I'm being written to by a comedian in like a very dark world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so I don't know, it's so good. I love it. I love it dearly. So I'm very excited to get to share this with you. With that, kind of concluding our overall thoughts and the overall summary, um, we're going to get into our breakdown. So for those of you of whom are listening uh, for the first time, we're going to go through these chapters, kind of roll through them. For those of you who've listened before, we're kind of taking a little bit of a different formatting approach, which you may have already noticed <laughs> from the way that we've uh, done this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. Let us know. Send us emails, everything like that. Let us know about kind of feedback on, on the format and everything like that. But I think that this will give us a way to both concisely capture a little bit more while at the same time still giving the same sort of depth and attention to the details that deserve it. So, let us know. With that, we're going to start with the end, of course. We kick off this week with the end. As is tradition, especially for a new series, I want to take a second and look at the first sentence here in the book. So, Logan plunged through the trees, bare feet slipping and sliding on the wet earth, the slush, the wet pine needles, breath rasping in his chest, blood thumping in his head. He stumbled and sprawled onto his side, nearly cut his chest open with his own axe, lay there panting, peering through the shadowy forest. This is, this is a pretty good. This is technically I, I cheated and I included the second sentence, but like it's a pretty good little intro that gives us like a good amount of details. It's immediately heart pumping like you're watching a movie or a TV show opening sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We also get a character with a, an improperly spelled name. So that, that's been fucking me up a little bit when I've been trying Immediately. to type things out. But yeah, E-N, not A-N. Yeah, Logan Nine Fingers, as I'm, it were. I'm sure that's an actual spelling of Logan, but I've I've never seen it before. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I've definitely seen it before. Okay. It's not the common spelling, not the common American spelling at the very least, but that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that what's so what's so nice about this, especially the thing about it as like an opening line, is it's it's concise. It gives us this pace. It explains that like there's an immediate threat in the world, and it gives us a reason to like buy into what's what's about to happen with Logan, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can you can very easily see how perhaps this chapter was appended much later. Maybe this wasn't the first thing that was written. It probably wasn't. Most prologues, first chapters aren't. They usually usually go back and write the right one for the beginning of the story. But like this feels like it's intent on getting you bounding out of the door and and into the rest of the book. Totally. Yeah, I can I can see that. Um, given the title, the end. I genuinely, mm-hmm. really, really assumed that this is a flash forward to after the climax of the book or something like that 
Like, I really thought we were going to jump back in time after this prologue. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely fair. I definitely get that. And it is it's interesting to be playing with full full titles, you know, again, for chapters as opposed to like chapter numbers and to to kind of have those sort of things to roll off as far as interpretation goes. We were in Lightbringer as well, but some of the other series that we've hit haven't had them. So mm-hmm. it is it is kind of a fun little note to add in here. And we're also introduced that this is kind of a fantasy land of sorts right away in the first chapter. We are introduced to this concept of a flathead, which in this case is a literal ankle biter as Logan is falling off of the side of a cliff next to a waterfall down into potentially his death or the river. And Logan is bit in the ankle, of which he exclaims. And I, I just have to ask, like right off the bat, any thoughts on Logan or this creature, the flathead? Logan's very clearly pretty comfortable with violence and fighting and facing out facing off against what is seemingly supernatural creatures or or something not in existence within our world fantastical yeah, yeah. something fantastical creatures seem mindless and zombie like uh or if they're turned humans or summoned beings or something else entirely Pigment of Logan's imagination. Who knows? I don't think that one's the truth. But regardless, Logan is capable right off the bat. Even if he is not not winning right now, he, he definitely seems uh, not too far out of his element, if that makes sense. Right away. Like that first sort of thought. Yeah, yeah. And he also kind of paints them up to be like a grave threat as well like flatheads are not to be messed with he quickly notices like his missing friends as a part of kind of everything that that happens but we get a little bit more of that as we actually head over the cliff down into the water as he kicks him off and falls with that that brings us to the first chapter proper of part one which leads us off with a quote here the blade itself incites to deeds of violence which is a quote from Homer. Now, before I say anything else or give any background on sort of this quote or where it comes from and some other like fun little details, I am curious what you think of this quote. Well, first and foremost, I think it's really funny that we have two books back to back that use Homer quotes as uh, part introductions. Uh, <laughs> being, first being Lightbringer and this. So that was fun to see, but I'm not intimately familiar with this specific quote. I'm, I'm sure I've read it because I've read Iliad and Odyssey, and I assume it's from one of those, but I don't, I don't remember it off the top of my head. Um, can't, can't recall the context. So my take on it, I guess, it feels like it's pointing towards the idea that for better or for worse, a tool wants to be used for its intended purpose what it's inherently good at so we're introduced to several characters throughout this section that have some particular attitudes towards certain tasks and none seem to really at first glance love wholeheartedly what they're good at but nature is kind of pushing them or circumstances or society or whatever is pushing them further towards those tasks i think I mean, I'm being obviously fairly vague to try to make it apply to all four of our perspective characters, but we've got 
Logan and violence. We've got Glockta and torturing. We've got Jazal and beating, I guess. Womanizing? And- yeah. <laughs> he does actually Maybe? seem to genuinely enjoy that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair point. Fair point. West is I, I haven't I haven't had enough exposure to West, I feel like, to really make a a great call on that intimately, but I don't know. It, it seems to apply to most of them well enough that I could see that being the reason for this this quote being at the top of the part. Yeah, I I think so. There there are a lot of different reasons that I think this quote speaks to the book. I think your read is an interesting one and one that I predominantly agree with. I think that it is about like the existence of the thing leads to it being used or or happening one way or another right like that's sort of the the way that it's portrayed and specifically referencing the fact that this is a weapon this is you know that's sort of the intent and whether or not they want to be used that way they are and that is i think a very apt description for all of our characters one way or another thus far what's fun to me about this quote pj is that it's kind of kind of a misattribution Hmm. This is indeed a quote from Homer, and it is it is not Homer Simpson, in case that's what you were thinking. I may have led you to believe that in my sort hmm. of preamble here, but it it is one that is actually from that even that that is quoted from Total War Rome. And so Abercrombie is a really big fan of Total War Rome, and it's used on like those interstitial screens, and he pulled it from there, and they had kind of not reinterpreted, but translated the quote to make it more apparent to what they were trying to kind of portray. Now, it's not that far off. It's important to note that this is more of like an angelicizing of the quote than it is like a mistranslation, if that makes sense. There are many translations of it. I'm staring at a full list right now. For instance, one of the more more recent translation and beckoning the iron drags, the iron itself drags the man. Iron attracts a man all on its own. Iron meaning weapon back in the day and sort of that translation, iron being the the sort of term exchange for a sword. Steel itself often lures a man to fight for the view itself of arms and sights to their abuse, which is sort of maybe the one that I would take most directly as a comparison. Um, So, yeah, steel itself already draws a man to blows. So, like, there are all of these different components that are effectively the same quote, but it is just that fun spin that this version comes from Total War Rome, so far as I can tell. (laughs) I did a lot of research to try to find that specific one, and everywhere I went, people were pointing to Abercrombie and then to Total War Rome, and I couldn't find anything that... That, that substituted otherwise so if someone else has the other translation somewhere and they would link it to me i would love to give a little bit more credit all right <laughs> that's really funny isn't it it's really good i and like that it. spawned the title of the book <laughs> yeah well it's it's not the blade itself is used as the as a version of the quote like the blade itself is used a couple of times Okay. different translations it's the back half or it's where it's placed in the sentence or you know like those little like micro adjustments gotcha so there is there is a version of that that is the blade itself but just just funny that it's a mm-hmm. uh, it's secretly a total war quote love it love that love that as a little start um okay with that let's get into chapter two back with logan the survivors so 
Crawling out of the mud, our boy Logan is escaping death and thinking about his... Go ahead. Chapter one. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) There's no numbers. Fuck that. (laughs) Good point. They're all chapter one to me. (laughs) Chapter the survivors. Doesn't chapter the survivors. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, crawling out of the mud, escaping death and thinking about his friends, first and foremost. Any thoughts on them and him making it out and like who he is as a person at this point? What were your early impressions of Logan? I mean, very clearly early impressions. But so far, it seems pretty obvious that Logan Nine Fingers is either very good at not dying very difficult to kill or both i mean i you can say what those are one and the same but i think they're a little bit different there's Uh, a little distinction yeah Yeah. well he's only really talked about the single group that includes the dog man and i can't remember the other people's names because dog man just three trees black dow there's a couple anyway yeah Yeah, either way it it doesn't feel like this is the youngest what was that Something I, I was okay. just continuing to list off characters. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. The weakest. That's his name. Anyway. He only has referenced those those party members, if you want to call them that, but it feels like this is not the first time he's lost everyone that he's traveled with. Like obviously later on we get the story of him losing his family, his children, and everyone else in the town that he's from. But specifically about like band of adventurers or travelers or warriors or mercenaries or whatever they are. It feels like he's been a part of a bunch of these groups that have all met similar fates. Just nothing to back that up. Just vibe. That's kind of where it feels. Just vibe. Okay. Got a vibe of death around. I don't know. He carries he carries a heavy burden. I would say I would I would say I'm immediately reminded in some ways of Kratos from the God of War series has kind of a similar sort of weight and historicity to him. I think as we like look at him, not nearly as self serious, of course, but like from you know like some perspective, you can see that sort of analogy working mm. right away off the bat here. So as we approach the camp we get a number of reflections on the flatheads and the people that are there of course but there's this quiet metaphor that the survivors here are really his memories of his friends as they're all gone of course he just sees them in flashes here and there but then also the various pieces of gear that he can collect from this campsite his trusty pot his flask and his boots all strapped on strapped onto his back and everything like that because you know you you have to be realistic about these kind of things these are these are the survivors they're my trusty friends Mm-hmm. Yeah, first read through, I definitely was not paying enough attention to this. Like, by the time it came to the point where he has to abandon the pot later on, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about at more of more of a length. Um, it really didn't hit me emotionally because I didn't have this. Like, it, it didn't stick in my brain, but that was very much not the case on the second read through. It was probably weirdly one of the most emotional points in the entire reading <laughs> somehow was going back and starting this again and getting to this like first mention of the pot. I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> you so, just don't realize how important the pot is to him. Yeah, you know, like exactly. It really is his friend. And then that just shows how important the choice is later with Kwai. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's, it's definitely one that I think is preluded 
well as like an emotional point later. So I think it's I think it's well recognized and then manifested. But because the again, so much of the series I think is handled with such a narrow deafness by Joe. There are like single lines that mean so much that you can like you can miss and then not pick up the context until it registers much later and you're like my god how did i fucking miss that and this is a this is this is just the first taste of that baby mm-hmm. <laughs> so very very exciting so i'm i'm super excited to continue down down this path with that logan heads off on his merry way and we move into the next chapter questions we're introduced to the torturer glockta And what a unique character this man is. Trapped in a perpetual war with stairs, he thuds, clicks, and drags his way around the city of Adjua and the dungeons of the Inquisition. His war with those 16 devilish stairs that he fights to make his way up to his office each day is just... I don't know if there's anything else that, like, gives you the tone of, like, what Joe, like, dials in on so effectively with characters but this particular little note is just so good as far as setting in this character it's so precise and specific there isn't anyone like glockta in all of fiction outside of him himself that i've read at the very least um and yeah i don't know what would you think of of glockta in her introduction here well i'm obviously hilarious this is <laughs> what i was talking about what we were talking about when we started listening to this on my way to, or on our way to my wedding, I was laughing out loud in the middle of Wisconsin Northwoods. It was great. He's obviously very thoughtful and has too, too fun to experience internal monologue at times. So it's really mm-hmm. captivating. Um, <laughs> the audiobook narrator, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Stephen Pacey. Stephen Pacey, amazing, and gives him such a tangible life, uh, somehow even more than what's physically written. Uh, All all of it, physicality, mentality, emotions, emotionality? I don't know. I don't know if that's a word. Could be. I thought this man was like 90 years old. He's 36. Yeah, he's not old, but he seems it because he's just been he's been beaten down by everything by, you know, three years of torture as we find out or two years of torture as we find out at the hands of the the Gurkish, which we'll talk about much later when that's finally revealed. But he's just been pummeled down by all manners of society. And now even his job is pummeling down. His existence is pain like he is he is captain hammered way hard than captain hammer ever was um just oh man so good and one of the things you you made mention of this but one of the things that i really appreciate about glockta is his deep internal monologue like the the way in which he kind of sinks into his thoughts is so effective and unlike a lot of other characters it's still a third person narrative but every once in a while you just get that internal dialogue note and it just feels like this lovely cross-section that leads you to at least understand why he like does the fingernail pulling and the hand smashing torture, you know? Yeah, totally. Like we've mentioned that you just mentioned what he actually went through the, the torture Mm -hmm. and everything that turned his mind and body into a twisted mess. But even before understanding that it's clear that this man has been through the wood chipper. This is, this is a broken broken person yeah yeah 
yeah, he he gets absolutely smashed. And again, you know, to reiterate something else that you said, Pacey shines in all of these different perspectives, I think. But in particular, Glockta is the best By single POV of any narrator that I've ever listened to. Of any. Like, it is just, it is astonishing. We've got a lot more to go, of course, yet. And in sort of that plot line and world, we're going to get to spend some time with Glockta. But like... It is, he is diabolically good even this early. Like, oh, yeah. Dan, Stephen Pacey, so unlike good. anyone else. Absolutely. Uh, I, truly, truly my favorite audiobook narrator. I think I'm starting to understand why that's the case. And I, yeah, I've spent a ton of time with TGR, so it's hard for me to rel- relinquish that like first place spot, but I, I could see it happening for sure. And Glockta is absolutely going to be the driving force in that um one thing i want to highlight given that is he has a very intense internal monologue and it's clear on the page obviously where he's in italics and versus like when he's uh speaking out loud but it's still clear in the audiobook it's how i consumed this section the first time was uh strictly through the audiobook i hadn't read any of the pages yet and i could still totally understand what was internal monologue and what was external speaking even though they were side by side with no words in between them nothing denoting it textually pacey is just able to convey that in his voice well enough that it was clear without explanation yeah it is absolutely astonishing how well he does that and it's it is without explanation it and it continues through so many other characters as well like it's we're obviously talking up glockta but i think that he nails a lot of different things um throughout different people and characterizations somehow stephen pacey turns himself into a full cast of characters um and none of them sound alike (laughs) I, i don't get it yeah it's so well done very nice Let's get getting back to the actual story itself, of course, here after now that we're done, you know, talking up Pacey and his ridiculous skills. If you haven't listened to this, by the way, you should. It, reading it is wonderful. I predominantly read it this time around, but man, Stephen Pacey is something else. I'll pop in whenever I can, whenever I can manage to find the time to listen. So I would recommend. But this brings us to Salem Ruse, which is who is our first character thus far that we've seen being tortured for information. What do you make of the Mercer over the course of this chapter, as well as the methods employed against him? How about his ultimate fate of being sent north as well at the end of all of this? So, first and foremost, Ruse seems like, to me at least, uh, someone who's actually guilty of the crimes that he's being accused of. Um, That's good. Yeah. I, I don't think I can say that about everybody else that gets tortured throughout this section. But that's okay, I guess. Uh, but that said, it doesn't seem like he's really a unique case either. It seems like this is just kind of how the Mercers operate. And we get some confirmation on that when Glockta is talking to the... It's his commanding officer. I can't remember his name. Is it... Is it K-Line or yes. the Arch-Lector? Yep. Yep. Okay. K-Line. It mentions that this is maybe a great example that'll keep the Mercers more in line. Like It, it seems pretty implied that like they all know that they're doing these things. And it's just kind of the way that they do business. But now, I don't know. 
making a making exa- <laughs> making an example out of ruse. Forced labor camps are fucked, like just in general. But <laughs> this one specifically is mentioned to be a fate worse than death. Like <laughs> you know, I mm. I believe that's the actual intention is just further torture. So yeah. It's a tough world out there, naturally. I find it interesting, too, that the band's name is literally Ruse, and thinking about it, R-U-S-E, even though he is the man that, unlike the rest of them, is not the Ruse of it all. You know, like, he's he's not, he is the one that is properly accused, but his name is Ruse, yeah. and, and the other ones, meanwhile, are actually, like, all schadenfreude <laughs> yeah. and bad. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. just a nice bit of nice bit of irony and also having the name salem as well with just like the implication of the salem witch trials being like a false accusation again you know feeds mm-hmm. into that same idea totally uh, even even in that small little little dose of a way so it's it's great there's a there's a lovely quote here as glocta kind of thinks about the way that he's going to be tortured talking to him about his tooth in the back and how he's going to come back for that tooth in a little bit. But he also says and threatens with a lovely little quote saying, body found floating by the docks, bloated by seawater and horribly mutilated, far, far beyond recognition. I think he even says like, not even sure of the gender, mutilated beyond that kind of recognition as this sort of deviant threat almost. He like kind of leans in 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 like a you know, a, a joyful way, although we know that he doesn't exactly take joy in his work. Right. He does and he doesn't. He does and he doesn't. So what's interesting is he kind of readdresses that imagery later on, talking about himself. Mm-hmm. So that paired with the specificity of this makes me feel like maybe it's not just an idea and maybe it's something that he has witnessed or experienced or seen something that's maybe haunting him. I don't know. We're not haunting him just on, on his mind, I guess. I don't know. We, we talked about, or I talked about, I posited that Glockta doesn't necessarily like what he does despite his ability to do it. Yeah, his inclination. There's sometimes where that's not true. There, there is sometimes where it seems like he's deriving some joy out of it. So, yeah, there's there's a little bit of masochism in this. Like, there's a little bit of that of like, not like full, you know, I'm getting back at them and doing that to you. But it's like I learned from the best. I think he says a couple of times throughout this whole thing, and that's kind of terrifying. (laughs) Maybe it's apathy. Maybe apathy is a better way to like look at it. Like it's not joy, but it's not. I don't know. It's not. It's what he has either. to do. Yeah, it yeah. just is what it is. Yeah, because yeah, otherwise he dies. But even then, sometimes he's like, "But death would be better than this," you know. And but he continues to choose life and continues to like do the things. So constantly, constantly torn. Glockta is. We're also introduced to Glockta's two practicals, Frost and Severward. Severward. <laughs> Severard. Wow. <laughs> as well as his ornery boss, Superior Kaline. What do you make of the lot? So first and foremost, Kaline is almost exactly my wife's name. 
Kalen is spelled exactly the same way, but without the E at the end. So that fucked me up a little bit when I first read it out loud. Because listening to it, I, I thought it was a C. Like, I, I didn't, I didn't mm. think it was anything close to spelled the exact same way as my wife's name. No, yep. that, that was kind of funny. I am interested in the hierarchy of the Inquisition with these practicals. And we don't get any sort of indication as to why they wear masks. But that feels... So maybe maybe there are hints that I missed or outright explanations that I somehow missed. But I don't know. Feels like a hanging question, right? Sorry, hanging question about what? One more time. Why the practicals wear masks. Hmm. Great question. Yeah. I mean, assumptively conceals their identity in public, right? They're just known as big dudes, but yeah. But that's just, they wear them in private too. Yeah. At work, you know, it's work attire. Uniform. It's like a nurse in, but what, what are, what, what did nurses wear? What are they called? Scrubs? Yes, thank you. Right. It's like <laughs> I'm like, where are you going with this? I don't know. You're you're married to a nurse, yeah. It's like a, it's like a torturer's it's like a torturer's scrubs is the mask and mm-hmm. the mostly the mask. <laughs> right. I'm curious though, too, as as well, like thinking about this, what are your impressions of the Inquisition and its superiors, inquisitors, and practicals as far as like layering goes with, with the organization? It doesn't necessarily feel like a ladder to be climbed. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like, it, it's not like these practicals will eventually become inquisitors. Maybe I could see that happening with Severard. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it feels like they are specifically there for this job and not as a stepping stone. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, man. There's some weird, not weird, but there's some differences in the kinds of practicals that we see. We we see someone like Severard, who's, who seems more like a shadow to Glockter, to Glockta. I keep wanting to say Glockter. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't uh, know where that came from. Because that's what it sounded like the first time I listened to the, mm. the audio. I just got Glock Doctor stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> but Severard feels like a shadow there are some that seem like bodyguards like the practicals of the oh what's his fucking name like the arch lector yeah the arch lector uh who are just big hulking dudes and and then there's frost who is also a big hulking dude and is also like a just kind of torture muscle you know just just there to distribute pain so yeah yeah there there is a little bit of a variety and then you've got kind of like the it's so funny that in a in a middle in a in a like fantasy european city with like this whole organization that's built around torture you have layers of middle management which just makes me giggle from the superior side of things (laughs) like government loves bloat man So reading the book, I particularly appreciate the way that Abercrombie writes Frost as well. I just think that it's golden. It's a perfect example of like 
really kind of epitomizing the way that some form of like language can get in the way of being understood. And especially with like a disability like that, I think it's well portrayed. Totally. Even if for comedic effect. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Completely. I, I agree. I love the way it's written. But at the same time, I feel like this is mm-hmm. one of the very few detractors within the audiobook. Because I feel mm. like I can pretty well decipher what he's saying reading through it, but it's too mushmouthed in the audiobook that I have to rely on Glockta's responses in order to understand retroactively what Frost said. It's still a yeah, wonderful I, I think- performance, and I'm sure that's actually what he sounds like, like more closely than than what I would be able to like read out loud in the book, but it did make understanding what he was saying a lot more difficult. Definitely get that. I, for me, from my perspective, what I kind of saw it as is the first time that it's brought up, it's supposed to be close to unintelligible and it's supposed to be a little bit more shocking. And then you're like, what? And then like you get Glockta's response of like making that out. But I think like, especially later it it's, pretty clear i feel like it's intentionally occlusive at first okay to be more of like a you know a shock factor yeah. i feel like more than other books that we've read at the very least on the show there is an element of performance to this one that is a little bit different i mm-hmm. would say and elevates it in its own way yeah yeah but i can see that not interpretation but like performance if that makes sense but um, i i definitely can understand that because there is you know, there are components that can read clearer and be closely understood. I think Glockta refers to Frost as his tongueless friend at some point. Correct? So he calls him a half-tongued. Half-tongued. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. where that's where he, the impediment comes from. Yeah, and he and Glockta himself, inside of his own perspective, also tongues his gums all the time. I'm sure you've noticed. Yep. It's lovely. And you just, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just checking for those missing teeth, you know, I see know, if they're still gone. What would you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It, it would <laughs> suck. It'd just be, you know, it just adds to this like gross, like ugh, to Glockta that also goes, makes you go. He's kind of neat, though, right? Like he's just a neat little weirdo. Mm hmm. <laughs> neat little weirdo uh, with a with a very strange facial profile i'm sure because his chin is an inch farther up than than it would have been if he had all of his teeth mm-hmm. yeah yeah very true he's got the weird the weird kind of witchy witchy chin as you kind of imagine it or think about it mm-hmm. so with that we meet superior k-line of whom immediately is almost like thrown out of the story <laughs> by and large by the arch lector as he arch lector salt as he kind of takes the place but we get to meet and kind of see the the structure of the place and k-line is given this this introduction easily bribed and manipulated with like taking a little bit of change out of the bin that is then later given to to salt and is easily manipulatable as well by glockta which shows his prominence and you know his capabilities apparently not though up to this point yes but this this attempt at bribery did not quite go glockta's way hmm I think he was turned in before the bribery. Oh, you think like, so? 
I, I believe that the text implies that directly. Okay. That like this was pre the result of what he had just done. So Kaline like wanted him dead regardless before this. Because he felt threatened. But we then return to go talk to the Arch Lector Salt, the leader of the Inquisition, as and Glocka's ultimate boss dictated and spoken to as his eminence or his eminence. That conversation largely leaves his fate, <laughs> at least initially, in question as we finally see a reflection of his status as a prisoner of the Emperor, which brings him ultimately to his first task, getting a confession to allow for the arrest of Septan Teufel. I mean, this feels like pretty blatant corruption on the part of the Archlector, right? Like, am I off base in saying that? That feels pretty, pretty direct, even... Having not How would read you define this? corruption? Crossland. <laughs> <laughs> how would how would you define corruption? I don't it know, but like I know he's when I see acting it, within this is it, system is because like the, no one's supposed to question the authority of the Inquisition. <laughs> is it like the definition of pornography? I don't know how to define it, but I I know it when I see it. Mm, ah, yes. Yes, good. I can't remember I the exact totally quote, but that. I think that was... I'm pretty sure that that is pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that was my first read on it right away, and I feel like I was only... It was only corroborated by the, the following events of him actually getting arrested and interrogated. So, yeah. But that said, Glockta either doesn't recognize that or just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> And just wants to do the tasks assigned to him. I don't know. I think he's afraid of getting killed, you know, and I think he repeats that a couple of times, but also at the same time, he's like, but I could die and then be fine. Body floating by the docks. Like, you know, mm. yeah. Complicated one. Yeah, it's a complicated situation to be in. Finally, he returns to Ruse to elicit that final confession from him. And he walks into the room and says, I apologize for all the interruptions today. Really, I do. It's like a brothel in here with all the coming and going. And it's just, God damn it, Joe. <laughs> it's such a stupid, simple joke, but it's, it's so it's good. It's such a good joke, though. It made me laugh yeah. out loud. Yeah. And like the game of telephone and Glocka running up the stairs and down. It's, oh, man. Questions. Fucking stairs. Questions is such a good chapter. Did you have anything else on this that you want to bring up? I don't think so. Cool. It's a long one. It's our longest chapter of the week, so just want to want to make sure. Mm. With that, we move to no choice at all. We return to Logan in the cave, waking uncomfortably from the cold of a snowstorm, which he digs his way out of. Wrapped in the shreds of his stinking blanket, he continues his difficult path, brutally hungry and cold. He recalls his children, his family, his past, people he can see in the long haul, almost... Almost to me, at the very least, painted like a Valhalla or like heaven-like sort of place. What did you what did you make of that and sort of the whole situation with Logan? Man, this scene's fucking bleak. <laughs> Top to bottom, you, PJ. There's going to be a lot of bleakness. Oh, I believe it. I can I can tell. Uh, it's rough, man. It's it's one of the most emotional like heavily emotional sections that we've read so far this week. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, it sat with me after every reading. I, I read this, I think I listened to it two and a half or 
I think I, I listened to it twice full entirely. And then like first half, I listened to another couple times and I read through it fully once. And I, I think I read through some sections. again. And th- this is always sat with me every time. The bleakness of the family, the snowstorm and like, you know, managing to claw his way out into the cold, basically, because he's afraid of being buried alive and never being found again. Uh, it's very melancholy for sure. Mm-hmm. We also have an old nickname of his revealed here, thinking about this and sort of the reason that he's fighting to survive. He could get vengeance for his father, his wife, his children, his friends. That would be a fitting end for the one they called the Bloody Nine. Yeah, I have to admit that I missed this context of the nickname the first time that I read through it. So the few other times that it's mentioned it's conceivable that he's referring to a group of people so i assumed like his company of mercenaries or whatever mm-hmm. called themselves the bloody nine i'm like okay mm-hmm. so we we've got a handful that we've talked about with the wolf or the, got the dog, dog man, man and yeah. and all that so i'm like okay so we've got nine people in the background that this guy but no okay for whatever reason, I just missed this little bit of context and that kind of got me spiraling on the bloody nine name. Yeah. And he is referred to often as, you know, nine fingers, basically almost as like a last name substitute, which is interesting mm-hmm. um, as well. So I can't recall. Logan did, does. Did, um, do all of the peasants that we run into have last names or, or are there some that are strictly like First name only, as far as we can understand. Well, there's there's a unique difference at the very least between Logan and like Jazal or West. Um, actually, all of our characters for the most part, Glocta and Jazal actually share similar backgrounds to some degree. Logan's a Northman, right? Like we we kind of know that from the stories that he tells and sort of the differences. So like, and we we know from our understanding a little bit later that the Northmen are a fully separate, like, country, basically. Mm. Isolated on their own with a king in the north versus the king of the Union. So. Which is a new development, as far as I understand. Yeah, yeah. The the North, having a king of the Northmen is new. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, that kind of gives us a little bit of a delineation. So I wouldn't call Logan a peasant. He's in a completely different country and class, if that makes sense. Okay. I, I didn't uh, mean to imply that he was a peasant. I just meant no, a yeah, I'm, noble I'm just adding in. that didn't necessarily have a family name. No, right. And I, I don't know that, you know, we don't have that information yet at this point. But it, he is, so far as we know, not noble. And we don't have anything sort of immediately on a family name that identifies him that way. But Logan manages his way down to the woods and slaughters a deer before proceeding to build a fire and call upon the spirits, of which give him three pieces of news. One is of him, which is obvious, having survived his fall. The second is of Bethod, continuing to make war with his golden hat, Logan won him. And the third is of a magus, seeking him in the south. The spirits flee shortly thereafter, leaving him to be after, you know, being brief flex of conversation. But pretty pretty unique as far as you know a lot of things go in terms of magic what would you think of the sort of spirits and their appearance what a somber sort these spirits are (laughs) yeah they could they could do with a little bit of pep in their step (laughs) but 
I liked their interaction. I also like that this sort of seems to point towards a little bit of inherent magical ability with Logan, which, as far as we've been exposed, seems to be quite the rarity mm-hmm. in this world. So that was interesting. I don't know if other people can talk to spirits, but he can. You can also do Baez that. makes it a point that it almost seems right, rare and like magic is leaking out of the world, right? A little bit yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. But we get other indications that Logan's at least a little bit magical with fire tricks that he pulls. So, yeah, yeah, Ab- absolutely. All right. Anything else on Logan, the fire and the spirits? No. All right, we move forward to playing with knives. We move to a new first chapter with a new point of view. Captain Jazal Dan Luthar's reveal here to start off his part of the story, I think, is brilliant. Here he is among friends playing cards, but they aren't like exactly his friends, I would say, as we kind of see him and his impression and theirs of each other, and we unpack their likes and dislikes of each other. They're they're friendly for sure, and they are also probably friends, but maybe one that's more akin to like army buddies, bunker buddies, as it stands. But of the group, we have Major West, we have Caspa, Jalen Horm, and Brint, as well as Jazal himself. What did this sort of this gambling match playing cards with Jazal and his buddies make you make you think think about? Well, first and foremost, he seemed like a capable swindler. Fairly or very <laughs> entitled, uh, whichever way you want to look at it, probably on the very entitled side of things, I would say. Um, he seems intelligent. On my first read, for sure, he seemed fairly tricky, if not outright magical, in his manipulation with cards. Strictly based on the reaction from some of the companions to him continually winning, I think... It could be taken that he's like we get his internal monologue. We know that he can see all these tells, and like he he is very intelligent. He's very good at reading people. But there's room. There was room there, at least right away, for me to think, okay, maybe he's like cheating, or either in a magical or non magical way. I didn't know what to expect as far as the magic system within this goes. So yeah, that's kind of where I was at first read through. Okay, cool. You just have these impressions of how good of a person reader Jazal Dan Luthar is. Mm-hmm. Reader people. Cool. We quickly leave the scene of cards in which he uh, unwittingly steals a bunch of money from Brint, of whom is very poor and cannot afford to play, and is informed by Major West, of course. Unwittingly. With Jiz- totally wittingly. Well, no, no, no. Jazal <laughs> is is witting in his in his action, but Brent is like unwittingly okay. stolen from, you gotcha. know, like because he believes that he's playing, you know, a more fair game. Not that Giselle's cheating. He's just very good. He's just such a better card player that he's stretches beyond mm-hmm. what Brent is capable of. Yeah. Sorry uh, for the interjection. <laughs> no, no, no. You're you're totally right. It was, it was a good clarification to to seek there. But we then run into the instructor of duels, his trainer for the contest, Lord Marshal Veruse, of whom is teaching him how to use the fencing steel for 
His competition that you'd mentioned earlier in the summary, the contest. After failing and flailing, he sent for a run by his instructor with the major shouting at him to leaning in a little bit into that same sort of sort of grumpy older brother kind of persona that West gives off to to Giselle. Um, first of all, can you imagine like fencing or going through fencing moves with a giant iron bar? And a blacksmith's <laughs> hammer? No. Yeah, right? My like, wrists <laughs> hurt just thinking about that. <laughs> Holy shit. <Yep. laughs> mm-hmm. That's insane. But that said, there is a very stark difference between the internal monologue of this scene and the internal monologue of when he was kind of in his element gambling with his friends. Here he seems so much younger and so much less mature. Um not like he's doing more mature things, but like, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to really put a point on that, but presumably this immature version that we're exposed to here seems more representative of his true self going forward and seeing how he interacts with the world and like, obviously still entitled and not, immune to embarrassment and still very concerned with how he's seen by girls and people in power and peers and basically everybody um so he's he's just this he went from at that card game feeling like a like i don't know a pretty well put together mid-20s something to feeling like a frat boy in this scene. Yeah. I don't know. There's a modicum of difference between a mid-20-something young professional and a frat boy. Like, there's not a ton of difference there, but there is... There's a step (laughs) between the two. Yeah, he, he has this sort of, like, burgeoning confidence that's overflowing that reminds me it, this is not a great comparison don't come at me but like it kind of reminds me he reminds me of like james bond at a card table a little bit like but a little bit more like yeah actually frag that that's that's not the right comparison this feels like a scene from lock stock and two smoking barrels and he is jason statham's character of whom has a little bit of that overconfidence to him in the moment and so I get I get that vibe. And then immediately he's thrown into actually doing work and is like, oh, my God, the fuck is happening? And, you know, is kind of grounded because he's out of that element. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could I could get behind that. Yeah. So, of course, this run happens. And through this, we get to see a little bit more of the city of Adjua during the daytime, as well as he gets to see the ladies. He passes by as well on his run, the crown prince, Ladislaw, of whom wishes him luck in the upcoming contest as well, despite betting on his opponent, Bremer Dan Gorst. That for sure made me laugh. I don't know the validity of it. Uh, Gisal seems to have a source saying that this prince has bet against him despite... All of it? Yeah, but who knows? I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't know who to trust here. Yes, but I'd believe I'd believe it'd, it'd just be gusto, I guess. I appreciate the scene 
I think the most for the really subtle immersion into this fantasy world mentions of small things that are different between our world and this world, like the game of squares that they play, Mm -hmm. which I'm assuming is chess or checkers or something similar. I think it's checkers was kind of my assumption, but okay. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I could get behind that, but it could be chess too, but just, you know. Yeah, there's an ingrained currency system. Um, I think they use the term notes, which I'm sure isn't unique to any anything specific, but it, it I believe was capitalized, so it felt like the proper term. And other other really small things um, going through, it felt like a nice way to ease into this new world that was uh, less jarring than um, something like Mistborn or. I don't know some other some other stories that we've read that are really jump you in, which has its place and can be very fun. But this felt very natural and smooth. Yeah, it feels. I mean, you feel like you're running with Jazal and you're just seeing a day on the town, right? Mm-hmm. It's like everyone's kind of moving about. You're running on the king's way, so all of a sudden it's like, oh, so there's a king here because we haven't really talked about the king that much at all. We know that there are statues on the king's way. Okay, we see the Tower of Chains in the distance of where he is running. What's the Tower of Chains? What could that possibly be? And there are all of these questions that are introduced without immediate answers from a narrator's point of view. And then there are a couple that are given like immediate credence because we like understand what a note is and we understand what currency is. So it all feeds in really well, I think, to your point. Yeah. We do know from Glockta's perspective that the king loves his taxes. He's obsessed the king, with his taxes. The king's taxes! <laughs> As uh, Stephen Pacey might put it. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> After running all the way up to the Tower of Chains, he sees a glint in the eyeglass that he believes to be Veruz watching him from a distance. He returns, wins before the game of the square squares is up as Major West puts up a good fight like a good friend, giving him a little bit of a break and reprieve from of whom was his training partner and gives him like, you know, just the littlest bit. I don't know. It's it's just kind of like a nice subtle note there. We see it is actually as a part of this fencing uniquely i think compared to a lot of other duels two blades instead of one a long blade and a short blade after practices he promises to give up drinking for the time of training and then we immediately cut to six hours later where he's drunker than shit what do we make of jazal and his choices and actions throughout so this is kind of where that uh rat boy comparison i think pays off a little bit more in that like he doesn't quite seem at least at least in presentation he doesn't quite seem like a like an alcoholic like his drinking habits would suggest and more like just kind of a college kid who's still in his heavy drinking phase um yeah and like you can argue that those can be seen as one and the same, but I, I feel like there's a difference in vibe between those two uh, attributes. So I, I I don't know. He feels like somebody who hasn't quite earned the the position that he finds himself in. Like clearly he hasn't. It was bought for him explicitly. Bought yeah, his for commission him. was purchased. Yeah. yeah, his captainship. Yeah, mm-hmm. he just hasn't quite gripped the mantle of responsibility with both hands yet. It's a good way of putting it. He's definitely struggling on that front, it seems. I I would agree with you. 
And and to that point, you know, obviously having his purchase commission and landed commission, as he as he kind of puts it, he's got sort of this regality about him. And so he, you know, the the man is kind of living like a college student. I love the analogy of a frat bro because Giselle very much, I think, embodies that throughout. So I'm glad you brought that up because he does he does kind of have that. We then kind of come to the big climactic end of the chapter is drunken Giselle and his crew, of which Abercrombie writes a very good drunken POV, like from the third person. Like this is guy with the bag on his head. Like there's there's some funny there's funny stuff mm-hmm. tucked in throughout this whole section where Giselle can't interpret the details because he's wasted that well. But Giselle and crew, mostly drunker than shit, run into Frost abducting Septan Teufel and Colonel Glockta, shouting for West to cease as they pull their fencing or their their swords, but like kind of fumble at them as Giselle does. Giselle doesn't even get his out. Yeah. <laughs> so drunk. But there's there's clear history here. Mm-hmm. Um, going just rewinding a little bit. Mm-hmm. Something that we made note of during our Mistborn coverage. Uh, Brandon Sanderson is a Mormon and naturally not a drinker. So when he writes his very few drinking scenes, um, there's there's something missing from them sometimes. He does a pretty good job, but this does Joe Abercrombie drink himself? I'm I'm assuming <laughs> yes, so based yes, on yeah based on how well these uh, reflect reality. But mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't I wanted to make sure before I put my foot in my mouth <laughs> and say yeah you can definitely tell this dude's a drinker. <laughs> Joe has immediately become one of the boys for PJ. Like he's like shouldering him, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, you want a, you want a scotch? Let's get a scotch." <laughs> no, but like it. Yeah, you're you're right. It it's definitely a well well constructed drunk POV. I was not. I, I mentioned this earlier. I was not expecting them to interact so soon, if at all. But more more so than that, I wasn't expecting there to be familiarity within the perspectives. I, obviously, I didn't know at this point that West was a perspective, but even even a close connection between Jazal and Lakta felt it, it altered my expectations of where this story was going to go in a good way, or not not in a bad way. I guess just I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, I mean, I totally get that. It just changed them, right? Mm-hmm. You you had an idea that it was going to be like a convergence of sorts as we look at all these different people from different point of views. And instead, it converges right away. Right. It, he what's what's the term? He subverted your expectations. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that's the term. I think so too. What do you make of uh, Colonel Glotka being fired off from West? Is it? Glock. How, how do you pronounce Glockta. it? Glockta. 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 Yeah. yeah. Glockta. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ta. Yeah. Honestly, I didn't pick it up. Mm. It didn't. It didn't okay. really register, which is weird, because I yeah. feel like it should have. But I, I didn't pick it up the first time, and then it just didn't seem notable after i understood uh glockta's background so like it it just yeah i don't that that missed me i guess 
I think it's a nice little hint as to how he gets tortured, right? Like mm-hmm. we're we're getting breadcrumbs throughout all of these POVs about what exactly has happened to Glock Glockta and like what has gone down, you know, in the world in general over the last several years. So or the passage of time, however frequently or recently that might be. So few decades. Yeah. And uh, he turns, of course, to Jizal as he's talking him through, like, the contest and talking about him. He goes, jab, jab, eh, Captain? Jab, jab. <laughs> it's just such a good fucking... So, God, glocked it. So... Uh, that absolutely made sweeping edits to what I understood Glockta's, like, off time to be. I assumed he was just, like, a hermit, basically, but... <laughs> He seems completely in the know of the local politics and goings-ons and the contest and who's training. Like, he knows everything that's going on. But at a certain point, that's probably kind of his job within the scope of the Inquisition. But I totally just kind of figured he was sequestered away in his dungeon-like cell not really a cell, but like his, he, why would he leave? His leg hurts all the time. He's in constant pain. Like just do your job, go lay, lay in your bed. That's it. I don't know. <laughs> I shouldn't have yeah. thought that, but it, it caught me off guard that he was in the know of what was going on around the town. He frequently refers to himself as a cripple or crippled. So, you know, like there's there's all of that context, of course. But yeah, it does. It does kind of, again, sort of sort of defy expectations or subvert them a little bit that it's like, yeah, he's out and about. Of course, he would be like mm-hmm. most if you could be you, you kind of would be. But it does feel like in particular, he he speaks about it in such a torturous way in his internal monologue that, you know, doesn't reflect what he does outside. Sometimes there's a little bit of a. A jostling there for position. Man, when I'm at work, sometimes every step feels like it's shooting pain, too. So I get mm. it. <laughs> yeah, supposedly there's a small origin here. When when asked how he wrote Glockta in some of the, like, steps and, like, the pain that he feels, he's like, I threw out a disc when I was, like, 20-something. <laughs> and, and then I knew. <laughs> I just, I had a base understanding. So, mm. yeah. Very funny. All right, with that, we move into... They make it away, of course, with Septan Teufel and take him away in the cart as this is literally Inquisition business and so no one should interfere and they don't. And West leaves saying, best we forget that that happened. We then move to the next chapter, Teeth and Fingers, where Septan Teufel is sitting in the uh, Inquisition's torturing chair. There's this lovely call and response that kicks off the chapter that says, do you know who I am? And Glockton replies, with, do you think we are in the habit of snatching people from the streets at random? Which is just so good. It's very good. Very, very yeah. good. Very funny. Yeah, it's it's just like the perfect rebuttal. Like there's there's all of this like lead up to this this whole thing. And it's like, do you think that like we don't know what we're doing? Of course, we understand what we're doing. We know exactly what we're doing. This is a very precise procedure. To which we proceed to a very imprecise scene in a moment here, but so that, so that points me to thinking that maybe he doesn't understand who abducted him. Hmm. But he, he he doesn't have the hood on; he can see. Oh, that's you know? true. Yeah. yeah. Never mind. At this point, 
you know, it was yeah, really to get him out of the street more than anything else. But, but of course, the Master of Mints put up, puts up a fight before identifying the old cripple as well as Sand Dan Glockta, who was captured and held in Gurkle by the Gurkish. So I was curious on this sort of pronunciation. We get his first name. You know, we've been calling him Glockta this whole time, but his first name is Sand. I'm still going to call him feel? Glockta. <laughs> yeah, me too. Gurkle is a very funny name. It reminds me of like the Murloc language from Wow and Warcraft. Yeah. yeah. This is where we get the description of what happened to Glockta's teeth, which is so fucked. <laughs> it's so fucked yeah. up. The way that they were basically pulled in alternating patterns so that they would never touch Not another tooth ever. Pulled. Slowly chiseled well, out of his mouth. Cor- yes, yes, yes. You're right. You're right. But they, the way that they were removed as well in the pattern in which yeah. they were removed. Yeah. You're right. They were slowly chiseled out of his mouth, <laughs> which is brutal. Tough, <laughs> 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 tough dude. Especially when he was eyeing that tooth before, you know? Yeah. It's like you go start collecting teeth and putting them in your own head, or what's the deal here, bud? Yeah, that's. Mm. You would think. Mm. With all of his tools, he could like fashion some dentures He's for himself. He's not an inventor. He's not an inventor. Or, I mean, rely on the vast like resources that the king. Like, he's got to have dental insurance, right? He's he's a government mm-hmm. employee. True. 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 I'm realizing now that I forgot to mention this earlier, but when he makes it to the arch lectors place he also says that the best he says like the worst person at the beginning of the chapter is the uh inventor of stairs the worst person to ever exist he wishes that he could torture him but the best person is the inventor of chairs <laughs> just the relief that he gets from sitting down stairs so and good. chairs are the stairs and chairs man stairs and chairs <laughs> but to the point of gurkle and the gurkish i gurkle is a very funny word I saw someone very actively complain in a discord that I am a part of that they were turned off from the whole series because of how close Turkish and Gurkish are. And I was just like, what a what a weird thing Mm. (laughs) to point out is because Gurkle is not close to Turkey. Like, that's not even close to the same. They're not even spelled similarly. No, (laughs) like. I don't know. It was very weird, but I, I just had to emotionally get that off my chest because Gurkish and Turkish are spelled similarly, but like that's But Gurkle and Turkey <sighs> are not. <laughs> right. Hmm. I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> but I just want to bring it up while we're here this first time. So then we get another torture scene or second of the chapter thus far. Although you could argue, argue that Salem Ruse was tat- tortured three times as he walked in and out of the room <laughs> those three times with all the coming and going. But <clears throat> we, we come to Septan Teufel. We give Frost with a keen nose and sense of direction, sniffing out rats in the shithouse, this cleaver. And he goes for the fingernails with these decisive slams and he gradually inches his way in, just asking for the confession, shouting, confess, confess. Is it Frost that does it? I thought Frost held him down and Glockta was the one slamming. No, you're right. Glockta Glockta does the cutting. Sorry, I misplaced that there. I was thinking of earlier when he does Salem Ruse. Right. Yeah. 
does a number yeah, on him. Frost, Frost holds him like a vice, and then Glockta just starts slamming, you know, and shouting confess and giving him the opportunities and, you know, saying, you know, commenting on the beauty of his fingernails, long and glossy, and never do a hard yeah. day's work with those fingernails, yeah. something like that. Can I work down a mine with nails like that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so good. The man doesn't react fast enough, of course, believing this to be a false threat, gets the t- very tips cut off of a couple of different fingers, and then they start to get just chopped off in sushi-like rolls as they fall off the table. The the bone, meat, and blood just kind of spurting as they, they drop off until he opts to give his confession yeah. after a couple of strikes. That 10-minute guarantee was pretty spot on, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. You would confess to me within 10 minutes. <laughs> it it, it felt more like it was maybe like two minutes, <laughs> given the way that it was. Right, yeah, who knows how much yeah. time is in between. But yeah, seems like it was pretty quick. Yeah, it seems like he's not given a whole lot of time uh, between it all. So it's a nice touch too, but I love the way that uh, Stephen Pacey hisses confess. Mm-hmm. Like confess with like the the ths altogether it's it's perfect it gives this impression that is separate from a lisp which could seem like it was you know intentionally demeaning but instead with that like that like single tooth sound that he somehow evokes yeah. i don't get it it's so well done it's very well done maybe so he pulled his getting the confession he recorded Good. most of the book and they went back in all the parts <laughs> where glock is speaking he pulled half of his teeth out Spoke that way. Yeah. Method acting. Method acting <laughs> indeed. It's it's so good. He just he got all of his teeth pulled out. He got dentures, you know, in between books. And then once he was done with the series, he he got them reimplanted. But uh, Teufel, Teufel finally agrees to confess, and we get what I think to be just just a, another perfect dripping bit of humor from Mr. Joey A, where we have Glockta saying, excellent. Glockta said brightly. Excellent, said Severard. Arthur said practical for us. <laughs> so good. It's so fucking good. It's oh, so God. funny. Oh. All right. <laughs> With that, we've reached the midpoint of our of our script. So we're going to not our script, but our notes. So we're going to take a little moment to talk about what we've been drinking over the course of the show. PJ, what have you been enjoying on the front half of the show? In the front half of the show, I made in what I'm calling an Adjua Sour. So it is somewhere in between a bourbon sour, a whiskey sour, and a New York sour, which is a whiskey sour with uh, red wine floated on top. Uh, effectively so to kind of make <laughs> a blend of those two it's basically a new york or a, a whiskey sour with a red wine syrup that i made for a tiki drink uh, a while ago so it's two ounces of bourbon i used the larceny bourbon that i was shooting earlier in the episode three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice half an ounce of that red wine syrup. So basically it's a simple syrup made with reduced red wine. And I tried out a new technique for shaking with egg whites. So instead of doing the dry shake and then adding ice and doing a wet wet shake and straining, I do the wet shake, then 
siphon off the um, or remove the ice from the shaker tin and then add the egg white and do the final dry shake and add to my glass um, which makes a lot of sense to me I don't know why I haven't seen that really much before but it it means that you're not beating the air out of the mixture uh, with the egg whites with the ice cubes after the fact so that I poured in a hoop glass and garnished with a couple drops of Angostura bitters so I would add more acid. I needed to add more lemon, more lemon juice. I might even do this. I don't know. Lime juice might be weird with the red wine syrup, but maybe it was my, maybe my lemons were too sweet or something. It just didn't have that sour bite that I was looking for. So, but overall, I like the flavors. I love a New York sour. This homogeneizes it a little bit compared to how you experience a New York sour typically, but overall I thought it was pretty good. I think I'd go one ounce instead of three quarters an ounce. Cool. Sounds tasty to me. Yeah. What are you having as your back half of beer? This is also from Luplin Brewing Company, which I talked about last week at episode zero. This is Campfire Munchies. This is the Ooh. Imperial Stout with cacao, marshmallow, graham crackers, and vanilla. So it's a it's a nice heavy one at nine percent. This beer is the beer that I decided on a whim to add to my chili recipe, which I took third place in my chili cook-off with. So pretty happy with that. Just just really, really chocolatey, really vanilla forward, wonderful imperial stout. Crossland, what are you drinking nice. today? The cocktail that I'm calling Spirits Under the Tongue. It is effectively a spin on a daiquiri, if I'm looking at this correct. I mean, it's just a little bit of a couple. It's a couple of modifications. It's nothing crazy. But it's one and a half ounces of white rum, three quarter ounces of a Cruzan dark barrel aged four year aged rum, three quarter ounce dry curacao, one ounce of simple syrup, just straight up regular simple syrup. And then three quarter ounces of lime juice and then a cut jalapeno that I left in there. I shook it about 10 minutes before we started. Seven minutes, somewhere in there like that, that stretch of time. And then I drained it. Important note, I didn't put the entire jalapeno in. The thing that I did is I took the pith and the seeds and I put that into the shaker. So I specifically took the spicy things with all the oil, put that into the shaker, shook it, expressed it, let it sit after being shaken and then strained it into my cup and double strained it into my cup and it is awesome it is hot it is spicy the only thing to maybe make it a little bit more on theme because it does look like a like margarita style drink is you could add more of the dark rum and less of the white rum as a substitute to make it darker because then it might feel or look a little bit more like a fire i don't think it would alter the flavor profile too much I think it would actually nudge it in a good direction, but overall, I'm very happy with this. It is spicy. You may have heard me hiccup a couple of times or like nearly hiccup after taking a drink of this because it's it's hot. This is a hot cocktail. That sounds really good. I I wouldn't necessarily want to upset the balance at all, but if you wanted to get that darker color instead of fucking with the white versus dark rum, which you could do for sure. I think you'd have a lot more success changing the color if you changed it to like a Demerara or a Terminado sugar yeah. syrup. 
something something that gives it more color. But I, that's a beautiful it, cocktail. It looks like a daiquiri, and I don't think you should. It does. It doesn't I, taste like a daiquiri, which is what's crazy. Yeah. Like, it totally looks like a daiquiri. It does not taste like one. I, my gut instinct as well was to put Angostura bitters in it, and I didn't. And I'm so glad I didn't because you get enough spice from the jalapeno that you don't need to play with anything else. So Awesome. It, it tastes really good. To follow it up, my back half beer is a low-pitch hazy IPA from High Wire Brewing Company out of North Carolina. Super good. Easy drinker. Had it a couple of times on the show. Haven't had it in a while on the podcast, but... You know, it's probably been since, I don't know, some point during Greenbone Saga, probably. Okay. Nice. It's been a bit. So, with that, we're back at it with the wide and barren north. We return to Logan sitting and waiting in the moor for several days, almost completely out of resources, when the mysterious and great Baez's apprentice, Malchus Kwai, shows up absolutely starving. Logan has questions for the great apprentice about the Magus, but... After eating his fill of stew, he falls asleep on the spot. I think it's really important to point out that Logan lies about having eaten and forgoes his food for the night uh, to give this poor boy a meal. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty telling of Logan's empathy and um, especially because of the rough exterior that Logan presents for himself. He, he's got a soft gooey center, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before that, uh, my first impression of Malicus was that he was lying to Logan. Uh, it wasn't <laughs> wasn't as properly connected to Baez at all. Um, and I, I truly continued to feel that way all the way until they reached Baez. I didn't necessarily believe that there was anything malicious happening, but I kind of got the impression that he was this lower rung member of the magi group trying to make a name for himself without authority to do so Mm -hmm. not the apprentice but the intern to the apprentice or something like that like that's that's the vibe that i was getting off this kid even through the entire travel that hasn't been entirely debunked yet, but it seems like Baez has uh, accepted the fact or has, has uh, corroborated the fact that this is his apprentice. Apprentice. Yeah, at the very least, he's he is willing to own him to what degree, you know, or or lay claim to him. But to what degree, you know, we don't exactly understand yet. Yeah, I, I definitely get that. There, There is this sort of like almost vagabondish nature that Malikus has, especially when he shows up that you're mm-hmm. kind of like. Are you legit? Like, did you just hear the first thing that I said and then repeat it back to me so that you could get food? Or Have you are you ever like a ridden a dude? horse before? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, and then he goes on the whole like, well, I lost the other one tangent, and it's you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like that whole thing, and it's like, are you really like here to look for me? And the gusto uh, of like who he's apprenticed for and how great Baez is and and mm-hmm. things like it. It just felt like he was blowing smoke a little bit yeah yeah it definitely does have that impression and there it just it seems it seems important and we we know of course at this point there's also this introduction after they you know sleep the night off of course they pack in the morning head off onto the road with Kwai recounting stories of his tutelage under the fifth of the magi zacharis that fifth student of juvens meaning juvens is also the 
leader of the Magi. And we get a little note later from Baez as well that, you know, says only Jews, Juvens could command me and he's dead. So we get like a little bit of history here that's kind of tucked in nicely between those two little little components before they're accosted by bandits. Before I move on, did you have anything that you wanted to bring up about Zacharis or the Magi or the thoughts there? I, It's just too vague right now. Like it's too little information sure. to really have anything to But you're curious. Grip. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I want, I want the whole background and hierarchy and everything. Well, and he's, he quite says he's from the old empire as well, which is curious as an idea. Mm-hmm. That was another thing. Like, I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know about this kid. <laughs> like, Logan hasn't um, heard of this country that he claims to be from. I don't know. Yeah. So they're being accosted by bandits and before the bandits are allowed to make a call on whether or not to strike based on the information they're presented with, Logan thinks it's a sorry fact that man who strikes first usually strikes last. You have to be realistic about these things after all. Yep. Uh, It was this fight's dope. The way he initiates (laughs) is really cool because all he's got is knives or knives. Yeah, but blowing the spirit to ignite the right the bandits. Yeah. Clearly, like a c- careful consideration, though, because this is their means of starting a fire easily, at least at their next location. So, like, it, it's a it's a tool at his disposal, but one that comes with risks. And as does everything, he seems very good at weighing risk before acting. Yeah, and. There are just so many aphorisms that Logan has that I appreciate, you know, like this, just sort of these like small quotes, right, that are just kind of running around in his head that I wish I just had a, a little chat book of Logan Ninefingers quotes like meditations, but it's just like, you know, the musings of Logan, the good guy <laughs> like this, you know, it's it's not ultimately a good. It reminds me of the blade itself quote, right? It's a sorry fact that the man who strikes first usually strikes last like the blade itself incites deeds to violence or what have you. Um, feels, it feels, feels pulled from the same philosophical text. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It feels at home with one another. So, yeah. And this is a wonderful, bloody conflict. You get kind of a taste of Joe's combat writing proper here, as opposed to the sort of frantic pace that we had with the flathead kind of to start off. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you get to see kind of a proper, proper fight. What do you think of our first real scene of conflict it's from joey a it's intense it's not as it's not as calculating in detail like sanderson's writing is it's not as prosy as pierce brown's is it's it's somewhere in between it's a very very happy medium and I, i like i really like the balance that's struck there Mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it i mean we've i've said this before i promise i will try not to reiterate this too much but pierce brown was very heavily inspired by the first law series throughout the entirety of red rising and that is especially evident to me in the combat sequences mm-hmm. between the two yeah totally so after this quick and bloody conflict ends spear through the shoulder a couple nicks gained by the bloody nine from these three 
these three unassuming bandits of whom didn't even know if they really wanted to steal the horse. They hadn't come to a conclusion as, yeah, as to what was going to happen. They were going to steal but, the horse. Uh, let's be real. Probably. They were definitely going to take the horse, but the rest of it? They didn't I mean, have like, anything, anything else. else? Like, I don't know. They didn't have anything else to take. Like The horse was the main yeah. prize that they But had. they had boots, and Logan needed boots mm-hmm. before they continue on their way. I think I'm beginning to understand Logan's reputation after this fight a little bit. <laughs> capable. Capable, very capable. Quite capable. Quite, quite capable. All right. With that, we move into fencing practice. We're going to spend a lot of time over the course of the series talking about how clever Joe is as a title writer and just clever in general. But this sort of dual title here that he uses and wields eloquently against us is just lovely the fencing mm-hmm. practice even though it's used directly in the text and pointing out the direct metaphor of it all i don't care it's still so good as well, we see that this is the worst of the two fencing matches so i i like to think and maybe i'm giving too much credit to it or maybe i'm reading into it too much because that's what we do here but it it feels intentional to very obtusely pointed out at first at yeah. first as a means of like hey maybe pay attention to the name of chapters going forward hmm. maybe there will be some some double meaning and some wordplay and some cleverness wrapped up in it i don't know but yeah i, I mean even questions as a title right yeah. it's like who's questioning who what questions are to be asked you know yeah exactly it's it, by the very nature of our show, we read into things a lot. So <laughs> it's the purpose. Yes, it's the point. So maybe it's reading into it too much, but I, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt there, and, and assuming that it's a, at least a little bit intentional to be that blatant about it. I think I think so. I think that there's something there. I think that this whole time he's kind of been pointing to those things, right? Like even the last one, the wide and barren north is the first time that we've seen Logan interact with people, with real people since the beginning. And we're calling this wide and barren like no one's there. He doesn't only run into The Apprentice, but he also runs into a group of bandits that we haven't seen before either. So he's seeing all of these people, but it's wide and barren. You know, like that's Mm -hmm. a nice little dose of oxymoron irony. Irony. Yeah, that's irony, not oxymoron. But yeah. Yeah, it's well executed nonetheless. So we return to fencing practice with Veruz and Major West. It goes poorly for Jazal, as he's not quite as skilled as the older, lower class West. And Jazal just oozes with classism this whole time. Like, he, he, there were undertones to it before in our previous introduction, but he seeps it now. It is, it is sepsis and it has corrupted his mouth and, or his brain at the very least. And he cannot escape his I am holier than thou sort of attitude as he's being bested in ways that he should be better than or he perceives himself as should be better than. Give me just just the briefest flash. And I promise, again, we won't double back too much on series that we've read with large stretches or spoilers or anything like that. But Giselle's perspective to me is what I feel like we would get out of Cassius's perspective in Red Rising. Yeah, I could see that early on. I could really see that. There's something weird here. Maybe it's not weird. It, I, it, no, I'm wrong. It's not weird, but there's something jarring about how 
casually aggressive this this sort of better than you vibe is like he he talks about it early on but like it's this is where it comes to the forefront and it, it feels off somehow and I, I don't know how to explain it beyond that it feels like this is going to be a sticking point for him and this is going to be something that while most of his other emotions are in check and most of his other like biases are understood and under control and, and tampered a little bit this feels like one that's going to be problematic more difficult to manage yeah, yeah. sticky yeah at the very least, initially, like he, he definitely has that impression, you know, of this is, you know, and it, it doesn't get easier, especially as the chapter goes on, because we are then no. later introduced to a central focus point here as Major West points out that his sister is visiting and he needs someone to walk her and watch her and introduce her to the city. Right. And so we're introduced to Artie and he agrees, but then he really sinks into like this deeply misogynistic sort of. Yeah, the misogyny is like there, you, but it feels like the classism is the main one. Well, I'm not even talking about Artie before that. Oh, I mean, yes. Okay. There's definitely, I'm not, I, I'm sorry. I am talking about Artie, but I'm not talking about when he overhears it, mm. right? I'm talking about just the idea yeah. of, of Artie, right? And so there's, there's misogyny and then there's also classism. And then it intensifies when we actually get to the door and he's listening in to that whole conversation. Right. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, this feels like a very obvious point forward for character growth. Right. So, like that, that I I feel like this is going to be a character trait that we're going to be able to look at over time and say, like, hey, he's very clearly worked on this. Just a gut instinct. Yeah, it it does feel like it has that inclination from him. Is that this is this is a spot that could potentially grow. If we're if we believe that that'll happen or it could knock but him down a couple to, pegs first. <laughs> yeah. And I reasonably, you know, if anyone's going to do it, it's already especially as we're introduced to her and the way that she immediately we go from this sort of like negative talk. Sounds like she's fat on the other side of the wall. There are all these different like notes that are just condescending bullshit from Giselle. He thinks that he might like sneak away and like not do this, but he's seen by someone else. So he knows that it'll be reported. Yada, yada, yada. There are all these different components that feed into this. And he is knocked speechless when he sees her, not only for like the additional color on her skin because she spends time in the sun, but her figure is just perfect as he described. Like there, there are all of these small notes that just leave him stunned speechless. And then on top of that, she is the most eloquent person he seems to have ever met potentially and is able to just immediately challenge him and is also complimented immediately for his wit of which Wes says is, you know, speaks highly of him which is mm-hmm. impressive and speaks to west as a friend if not yeah so, maybe problematically setting up his own sister you know yeah and he regrets it immediately <laughs> yeah west, uh, west has a problem with this choice he, yeah he why would he do this in the first place didn't have much of a choice necessity yeah yeah um despite i mean put, pushing aside the sort of problematic nature of Dizal's, uh preconceived notions. This whole interaction is hilarious. It is very clear from like before they even inter- interact. Like 
from the conversation that he overhears, it's very, very clear to me, and I presume to most readers, that she knows exactly what's going on within the city, within nobility, within society. She's not some country bumpkin. She gets it. She's in the know. And Giselle never clues into that. (laughs) Yeah, I think she's even using herself. Like, there's the comment of, like, her bending over and exposing herself. She knows exactly what she's doing. She... That that is entirely a plan. She doesn't do anything. She doesn't clean up the wine at all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the entire the entire wine bit is also interesting as she like pours the wine, slams her wine, and you know everything else that kind of goes that direction. Obviously, can't get it off of his clothes, you know, because that's not going to happen. But yeah, Ordi is incredibly calculating right off the bat. Yeah, bad totally. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, hilarious. But and, uh, and he has kind no of idea. infuriating to hear Giselle like not clue into that because, it, because it's, so not, smart. it's not just him being oblivious as, as like a love struck. He's he's boy. truly dumbstruck. Like yeah. I've never read a POV that is so dumbstruck, and it's so accurate. It's like, really accurate, I don't know if you've ever but, had those feelings, oh, but like that's God. exactly what happens. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It, yeah. it is exactly what happens. But still, even those, like, even with that coming into play, his biases towards non noble families is still so strong that he's, like, it's not dumbstruckness that, that's saying, like, oh, she doesn't understand what she's doing. It, it's, it's, it's just. He's fundamentally classism. questioning his beliefs, too, to some degree. I, I think that he's I think that he's squaring up with it a little bit like he's not overcoming them by any stretch, but he's like, wait, this is this is rubbing wrong against my understanding of what like should be. So at the same time as he's yeah. dumbstruck, he's also like trying to ration, you know, his mm-hmm. his thoughts. I know that I use Cassius as the comparison, but I'm going to pull back a little bit and say a little bit of Cassius, a little bit of Roke and we'll leave it there. But. Yeah. So. Yeah, what and God, he just turns him turns him into this little mewling kind of a man. Like we've seen him be so confident. And even in things that like he's fighting to be like really good at, like fencing and everything like that. Like he's he's struggling and willing to struggle. But here he literally turns into a little calf, just like barely able to open his mouth and make more than a passing moo noise. So he ridiculous. Saves it in the best way I think he could have. By like admitting how how gobsmacked he is and insulting West in the process, it's so <laughs> well done. Yeah. Like, yeah, he he calling him ugly, right? He falls down a mountain into like in like he he tumbles onto a snowboard. Yeah, yeah. he tumbles onto a snowboard. Yeah. Yeah, and skates right out, which does speak to his wit. And it's, it, I mean, it's just, it's well done. Mm-hmm. The cogs just needed so, to turn a little bit. Yeah, just, just a little bit more. Right. Just need a little bit more time to marinate the juices. 
This chapter, to me, also brings forth another talent of Abercrombie's. We've talked a little bit about it over the course of this, but he is so good at casually introducing a lot of history and the world and simultaneous mystery without it feeling like direct exposition. Use a couple of examples from things that we've read before, but I speak to this point specifically of like the King's Way, the statues of Herod the Great, of Baez, of whom we later see the first of the Magi, as well as the shadow of the house of the maker in the distant distance behind this locked door but it's always looming and like never like there are all these like tiny details that are just so well interspersed inside of a narrative that is effectively a stroll with a girl of whom is seeing the city for the first time yeah it's letting us slip deeper into the warm waters of this new world like i was talking about earlier allowing for this purported outsider to t- sort of take the place of the reader while we also get to like feel frustrated and embarrassed by Giselle deciding to mansplain to this girl what's going on with what's happening around the city but that gives us the context of what's happening like it, it's so well crafted mm-hmm. yeah. to give us information and also make us frustrated that we're getting that that he's giving information, but at the same time, like it's good that we're getting it, right? Because it's not like Artie doesn't know all those things, right? right? As she proves time and time it's again, clear as she that she adds does. Context. She's she's the one yeah. that brings them up, mm-hmm. and and yeah. he still bumbles through it. <laughs> it's it's so it's so silly. It's so perfectly silly, but it works but yeah, great for us as readers as, as mm-hmm. new entries into this world. I'm curious what you thought of uh, the Kingsway and Baez being a statue on the Kingsway, if you had anything there. I didn't quite know yet what sort of timeline we were looking at. So I'm expecting this to be like either. I, I Truly, I'm expecting this to be like several hundred years old as far as these statues go. So I'm like, OK, so Baez is an old motherfucker or is like an immortal being or something like that. If he's still kicking around, I didn't, I didn't pick up anything very particular on the King's Road itself other than the statue. House of the Maker, Herod. Yeah. Yeah. Herod, Herod, however you want to pronounce it. I recognize that name from something. What would that Um, be borrowed from? Is that, is that biblical? Roman, I believe. Okay. Okay. Both. Por que no estos? But yeah, yeah. Herod okay. the Great is Roman Jewish client king of uh, the Herodian kingdom of Judea and Rome. Mm, okay. I think there was some something that... 4 BCE, if that gives you a range of time. Yeah. I, I want to so like, say... Right on that. I want to say there was some recent discovery in the last like decade or two of, of a coin that like completely depicts herod yeah depicts herod and fucks with the timeline quite a bit because it was found underneath the supposed wall that herod built mm, interesting maybe someone was trying to tunnel out i don't know great great point <laughs> yeah, though. I, I, remember, uh, I remember some hubbub about that a long time ago and i know no details on it so i could be completely wrong it- but and to like the meta point of Herod the Great, like often the question that's posed is what makes Herod so great anyway, which is kind of like a fun meta thing 
especially given the text here that we're talking about too like why is he Harry the Great? We're left questioning because we still don't fucking know why he's Harry the Great in a similar way. So, yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because obviously this doesn't take place in our world, but there are clear tangential references where Abercrombie is at least tipping the hat at certain things here and there. So, yeah. And I, I also it's this is a weird thing to like. Point to, but. There aren't that many fantastical things uh, that are described within this world that are that don't exist on our world like aromatic mm-hmm. cedar is like one of the main trees that they talk about I've got a fucking cedar tree in front of my house i hate it it's so ugly it's big and just in the way and it eh, eh, i want to take it down but i can't <laughs> so i think about that every time that i read that section talking about the cedar trees totally totally fair they're all of the trees are reminiscent of and i actually i think that's important that you bring up the trees because it is indicative of the environment that we're in which i think is important to recognize as sort of maybe mid-european where we're at with with like the center with adjua at the very least mm-hmm. um so seems like it with turkey yeah turkey i don't remember Gurkish, Gurkish, and Gurkle, Gurkle. Yeah, yeah. It, seem, it seems European in nature. Very, very. It gives off that that sort of vibe and energy. And we've we've got a lot to go. Of course, one of the things I know that you may you probably don't immediately at the very least. But one of the things that I really appreciate about the series is that there isn't a map, and so so much of our expectation of the world is left up to reading the text at first. That, like, the fact that there isn't a map in the front of the book lets you go, well, where is this? And, like, you start to, like, have you have to piece it together like everything else that you're doing to kind of give you a sense of direction. So, yeah, I, I think weirdly, one of the points that that makes me think of immediately is the fact that Logan has to go south to get to the Great Northern Library. Like, mm-hmm. it's something small and it, it's not that meaningful. It just means that he's north of the Northern Library. but. Yeah, it it puts together a little bit of a sort of scale. How far, it, it how far north of the north? That, like, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it sticks in my head like, okay, so he's way north, like not way north, but at least what? A couple hundred miles maybe of. Yeah, it, probably like not that far north because it's like miles. a 40 mile trip. Yeah, I would, I would bet it's probably somewhere between 200 probably around 200 miles yeah Yeah. so there's that like it it slowly creates this map in your head with these weird things that stick in your head about the cardinal directions and that's yeah and and the geography and like what's what and Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting because i'm generally on your side of things like a map is really cool i like a map like it and that's a baseline fantasy thing but you pop open this book and you don't get that first which is what you typically get you get the author's note and then you get the end (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is clever (laughs) it works for me like i i never find myself referencing the maps because i can't hold it in my head so i don't think about it and i I just kind of roll with it so the fact that it's intentionally fair i thought you really liked the maps which is why i I like looking at the maps 
but they, oh, I don't yeah. hold them in my head. Like I, I, I can't, I don't yeah. flip back and forth between the map and the text when I'm reading. I just look okay. at it like before and after <laughs> the book. That's fair. I, I typically do too. Yeah. I'm, I'm usually a <clears throat> check it out right away. I get an idea of like what's around and then very occasionally if things get super wordy on like locations, I'll go like, okay, well what, where's that? Where's that? Where's that? Not a problem in some series. Sometimes it is, but you know, sometimes it'll be like there are three or four, you know, planets or countries or whatever referenced in a row. And you're like, I don't remember where any of that shit is. <laughs> so, um, to round out this chapter, there is an interaction that happens with San Dan Glockta here, as well as this history between him and Ardy, culminating in a moment of recognition of the cruelty inflicted upon the torturer. We get a little bit more of Glockta's history here, inadvertently from Ardy. What did you make of this sort of interaction between the three of them and this sort of, I don't know, note about who Glockta was before? This was a fun but kind of sad interaction. Very sad. Um, it was fun for the confusion that Giselle experiences. I think right. I think that's where the fun comes in. But for the most part, it's pretty somber, and uh, I'm still not quite sure to what I what I make of Artie in general. Hmm. Like obviously, she's not. Like, very clearly, like we've talked about, she's not as uncultured as Giselle assumes this entire time. But it feels like there might be more to her specifically beyond beyond the history of the rest of West's family. Like, it, it feels like there's something in between when Glockta came and visit and stayed with them for the summer and now. Like, she went on her own sort of journey. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. It just feels like there's something. Sure. Okay. But maybe she just grew up. I don't know. That's fair. I mean, she totally could have grown up, but there's definitely something almost heroic in the way that Glockta is portrayed, right? Like, even even just the perspective of, like, they would wake up every morning, duel, and Glockta won every time. Just gives you this perspective of, like, the desire the to shit. fight. And then if you... Yeah. And then if you reflect on his the reaction that happened before when they ran into each other a little bit intoxicated as Guacta was running off kind of torturing a man, he was like, well, you know, I'm not going to like I, I can't really do that anymore. But Frost could, but he doesn't particularly fight fair. So it's probably not fun for you, which is it just shows maybe even how much Guacta has been twisted by what happened to him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Lots to unpack. Lots to unpack. All right. So with that, we pick up at the morning ritual. Glotka waking up, tortured from his dream, is slowly crawling out of his bed, imagining the blood of Jazal splashing against Artie's face. He comes to realize that he's twisted and turned in his sleep and cannot turn to face the day. Matter of fact, he needs to be helped out by his assistant Barnum out of the bed. This mastermind, this torturer of all of the awful undercruft of humanity and criminals of society can't manage his way out of bed on his own. We get a sense of his days. He gets underway, rolling out of bed, helped by Barnum. He gets a hot bath and warm porridge that is shouted into this chant of a breakfast chant, which is just, it's so much that seems to be the only meal that he can actually consume. Yeah. He, he tells Septen Teufel 
that he has mm-hmm. soup most days. So pre- presumably there are different soups that he has. Would you consider <laughs> porridge to be a soup? I mean, a grainy soup, but sure. <laughs> oatmeal is oatmeal soup. I think so. I, I don't know if I can buy the cube rule. I think oatmeal okay. is a soup. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. But yeah. soup is also a salad. Yeah. Yep. By the cube rule. Everything's a salad. <laughs> a lot of things are salads. <laughs> all, all things are salad. It, it does seem like porridge is on the short list of rotation for this man. It's a sad existence. I was thinking about this uh, earlier today. He could still like bite stuff and tear stuff. He just couldn't like chew very effectively. So he <laughs> is, could. Is that eat, really our measurement? Like, cotton candy where he has to like bite it off the stick and then it'll dissolve in his mouth. What else could he eat? We gotta, I mean, we gotta get our boy Glockter some better food. No. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yes, but no. I mean, I, I feel like the solution, we're, we're searching for a solution via food, and I feel like we should be searching for a solution via replacing his teeth. Yeah, he really just teeth. needs... Yeah. He just needs... He needs some, dentures. He needs anything else. He needs, he needs a, someone to baby bird the food into his mouth so he can have flavor. You yeah. know, like literally anything else. Ooh, he could just survive on guacamole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let Frost chew up all of his food and feed it to him. <laughs> oh, no. He he does say among this, which, you know, is, I, I think, like a, a fun little insert quote, but also like kind of wholesome for a little torturer. He says, you have to learn to love the small things in life like a hot bath. You have to love the small things when you've nothing else. <laughs> just... Mm. <laughs> Yeah. perfect level of just internal tortured soul so in this dream that he's waking up from i really really liked the transition between the the dream and reality um frost frost voice started interjecting muscle uh but when he wakes up half of his body is like numb Mm-hmm. and that's a pretty fucking cruel way to come to consciousness but it got me thinking it, amputees and people that have like no feeling in their extremities can they hypothetically feel their limbs in dreams interesting I, I would be I don't know that's a, that's a great question yeah I, um, I have no idea I'm sure like obviously neither of us are <laughs> It no, right, that, right, but. right, right. But we we do have a there. There's a follower among the howlers, and I'll be curious to actually ask that at some point. I think it would be a good, a, a reasonable question. I think to ask because that is a unique one, mm-hmm. to say the least. I'm curious. Good, good question. Hmm. I mean, it it feeds into the phantom limb thing, right? Like that's yeah, all among the same sort of family. So after a long, you know, breezy, bright morning shuffle, you know, the click, tap, drag, click, tap, drag, as it all happens, Glockta makes it up to the Arch Lector's office and has a wonderful, lovely, vibrant, 
colorful conversation with the secretary in which he basically swears them out saying what other fucking cripple would be here you goddamn piece of who the fuck else do you think is this is so do you really think i would climb those god fuck what the fuck and then gets let into the office it's a very Um, calm and productive conversation yes yeah, but we waltz in into the middle on uh, a conversation with Surveyor General Halleck, who seems to be a shoe in for a place in the closed council. All things considered, based on what we learn of the death of Lord Feekt, I think later Feekt, which is what a name. Uh, <laughs> but after the man departs, he uh, begins to explore salt arch lector salt's intent here and explains to us some of the political interworkings of the union and what he sees to be locked his role in all of it to help control the person of the union through whomst ever lord the lord chancellor might be and to serve directly as his agent against other forces as his inquisitor exempt yeah glocta's in a pretty perilous situation here kind of Rock in a hard place Isn't a little bit. Always? Well, like, yeah. Even at the top of every set of stairs, Glocked is in a perilous situation. <laughs> That's a good point. But he, he might fall and die. He definitely recognizes that accepting this position means he will not will not gain any friends and any that he might have. I don't know if he really does have any, but they'll probably fall away. And it's more than likely going to turn into him becoming the fall guy for the arch elector in general, but he either understands that he doesn't really have a choice. He can't really say no, or he's got that sort of shroud of apathy that I talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, Maybe that's kind of rearing its head. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm in this far. (laughs) Might as well. (laughs) What do I do? Mm. Pass the point. Yeah, there, there's a lot that kind of rotates around the way that Glotka considers this offer. And also, it's a non-offer. This is an extension of reality or death at this point. Like, he has given so much honesty and truth to Glotka that if he turned around, there's no way he's making it out of the room. Like, if he said no, he's not making it out. Like, guy's toast. Yeah. yeah it's a non-offer. Yeah. Bloated body off the dock. Floating by the docks. Yeah. There's this lovely quote that I like here as well from <laughs> from Salt, which I think just embodies, I don't know, a certain perspective that is almost ageless at this point, but is also seemingly immediately dated the moment that you consider it. So Zoller. Things were different in his days, I can tell you. No whinging peasants then, no swingling merchants, no sulking noblemen. If men forgot their place, they were reminded with hot iron, and any carping judge who dared to whine about it was never heard from again. The Inquisition was a noble institution filled with the best and the brightest. To serve their king and to root out disloyalty were were their only desires and their only rewards. Oh, Things were grand in the old days. Yeah, good old days is certainly something that Glockta is pretty familiar with, I think. (laughs) I think the only good days were the old days in his respect. Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to... I'm I'm more calling this into reference. You're totally right. With Glockta... I'm I'm making a joke about... The only days that were okay with him were the old days, for sure. 
But for people like this is what we see with like, oh God, all new rock music or like all new whatever. And, you know, it's sort of that that like indictment of the younger generation or of the next generation, as it were. And in the case of the difference between him and Zoller, like this is 60 years. This is a full couple of generations especially given the sort of like medieval time frame that we're working with. So, you know, mm-hmm. the old don't want to move on. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And sometimes, sometimes things do get worse. <laughs> yeah. Like it's not always just them pining over something that can never be or never actually was. Like, I don't know. Things seem pretty fucked. <laughs> So yeah. I could I could see there being legitimate grievances, but yeah, I feel yeah, definitely feels like damn these kids kind of deal. Yeah, right. Or damn the young ins or like, you know, pushing back against sort of the standard of society being lower. And as such, he's pointing to the mercers and the merchants trying to make a life for themselves inside of this institution, which it would have been better if we could have been the old holy days where we put everyone up on, you know, pyres and burn them alive for even thinking of the idea of not paying the Lord's taxes. Like that's sort of the indictment that it feels like. Hell, now there's even a non-nobleman as a major in the army. God damn, how (laughs) dare he? How dare Major West even dare try to exist in this fucking... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Glocka, though, is left with his task and to add names to the list of the names on the confession that's been signed so far as they clearly are villainous indeed. Mm -hmm. These are all evil people according to Salt, and are obviously accused, not accused, sorry, guilty of crimes, despite having no proof or evidence and are supposed to be, you know, dug and attacked for such reasons. All these these people, very strictly villainous, evil people, nothing to see here, no corruption, no personal personal gain to be made by by the Archlector. Why would you suggest that? Salt is not angling for a better role in the council and to have more control no. in the close council. Why would he do that? He's, he's not aiming to appoint a person who hates everybody except for no. him. Yeah, that's on it. That's on it no. for sure. For sure. Mm-mm. Surveyor general is actually a good dude. Super up and up. Yeah. Uh, Salt also gives us a quote that is, wow, so interestingly reminiscent of this guy Lorne that we hmm, he says pull up the root and the leaves die by themselves hmm 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 I feel like that's a pretty common idea when you're rooting I mean, that out just happens yeah like any any <laughs> sort of criminal syndicate <laughs> yeah literally anything yeah or anything. pull anything yeah yeah out of the ground by its roots it dies yeah all right. With that, we end Glockta for the week. We'll circle back, of course, with him and the other POVs and Giselle and everyone else later. But with that, we return to Logan with the chapter, the first of the Magi. And Logan is at risk of losing quite illness on his trip to the Great Northern Library and his inability to make it another 40 miles, to which Logan decides to ditch as much as he can physically dropping many remaining weights that are holding him down so that he can carry quiet the remaining distance 
all the while reflecting on war and its victims, and he ditches his old friend Pot to carry Kwai the rest of the way. Yeah, what a wholesome little scene within this already brutal, oppressive book. I was expecting him <laughs> to ditch Kwai. Like, straight up. Aww. I Yeah. I thought that's what would happen. I thought maybe there was the possibility where he doesn't actually die and he gets, like, nursed back to health by some opposing force and hmm. maybe comes back later as, you left me to die. Yeah, but no, I, I liked how this happened, but I am going to forever miss that pot. <laughs> you know, that goddamn pot only reference that, I mean... You get it initially with the way that it was so important to him when he picks it up as the survivor. You get it when he makes all the food for him over the course of the time as his best friend. And then he leaves it. And that's just you can see that, especially in like an episode of TV being such a big deal. Like this is like a center. It's his Wilson, right? To some degree, mm-hmm. like. And to leave your Wilson behind. I could I could see something pretty artsy as far as in like part of an episode like the intro of an episode where the camera's at the bottom of the pot and then and, you see him tumble over and yeah. then you see it tumble over and watch him walk away on its side mm-hmm. something artsy fartsy like that i don't know yeah you don't even need to do it from the perspective of the pot but maybe you start on the pot and then you see logan fighting the flathead and then falling over and you follow that whole exchange then he comes back up and as you see it, when it cuts away from him, like uh, starting to ascend the mountain, you see it again from the pot's perspective. And then when they're walking away later at the end of the episode, you see it again from the pot's perspective as he abandons the pot. And there's just this like hopeless through line of this best friend of the pot. It'd be, it would be fun. I would like it. A little yeah. condensation runs down the the corner of the pot. like a <laughs> the edge, It's raining on the pot. <laughs> There's this like perfect blend of humor that I think would be could be so difficult to nail in an adaptation because this is none of it is cheesy, but a lot of it is funny and like very intentionally aimed jokes. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm very curious about the forthcoming adaptation as such, because it's not like his humor changes, you know, as we go throughout this whole thing. But like, I'm very interested to see those things and how they play out. Do we know I am any any details of the adaptation? Yeah, there's there's a number. Like he he wrote the script, specifically was hired. The director of Deadpool one and two is the director for the movie. And Rebecca Ferguson from Silo and and like Doctor Sleep and a number of other things is set to lead as the lead character there. So yeah, there there are a number of details that are out already. All right. It should cool. be a good thing. It's it's fun that they're starting with book four. And I'm very intrigued. Hmm. But it's also where Abercrombie was like, if if I were a studio, I would start with book four and then like work backwards. Not like three, two, one, but then go back to one, two, three. And then, you know, it's it's a standalone cell. That's why the standalones exist the way that they do. So yeah. that's why they're called the standalones. It's a Star Wars thing. I mean, it's it's more like no, I, get I don't know. It. I get it'd it. be like selling. It's like selling the Hobbit, and then you know, but if the Hobbit were after the Lord of the Rings, 
It'd be like selling The Hobbit and then walking back to the Silmarillion. But if it was a full story, it could but happen. The first law is so good. <laughs> so good. It's so important for the rest of it. So it's impossible to ignore. But Best of Gold, it's a little bit separate. So I understand why. Bringing it back in to where we're at right now. Kwai, on the trek to the Great Northern Library, explains to Logan the first law, which is vaguely elaborated upon through his starving, nigh-dying fog brain. It is forbidden to touch the other side, to speak with devils. The creatures of the world below are made of lies. You mustn't do it. You mustn't do it, Logan. That was pretty fucked, having him jolt into consciousness like that and just kind of fall away. It felt very much like possession of some sort. Um, I don't rightly have the understanding to make out what it all means. I suspect either the flatheads fit into the creatures that he's talking about from the other side, but I could also make a case for what's his name? The giant Oh, Fenris? Fenris, given the sort of dark energy that people feel in his presence. But I don't know. I don't know what it means. Sure. It's only the first law, PJ, which is only the name of the whole series. I mm-hmm. can't believe you figured it out at this point. How haven't you put it all together? You know what I mean? I should Episode figure one. out the other, the other laws. I need the last law. How many other laws are there, PJ? PJ, how many other laws do you think that there are? Six. Six? Okay. Just six? So there's seven total. First law and then the six <laughs> others. <laughs> A total of seven laws. Okay. <laughs> there's the first law and then there's the next six laws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we then arrive at the doorman at the entrance to the great library in the city that is next to it after this 40 mile trek, this grueling trek that Logan makes it around after a bit of a scuff at the door in which they're kind of arguing back and forth about the nature of the thing and like, just let him in. We should just be taken care of. This isn't that big of a deal. We're starving. We're dying. Whatever. He asks to he lets Logan in after asking to see his hands, how many fingers he has, knowing that the man at the door is waiting for a man with nine fingers. Yeah, this old bastard just won't listen <laughs> to anything. And yeah. it's a pretty funny interaction uh, at the gate. But I, I do wonder how many times Logan has to greet people with with his hand outstretched <laughs> to prove who he is. And I feel like that would maybe get a little bit annoying. Oi. It's, I'm missing just the one. It's his Leave me alone. middle finger, right? Or is it his ring finger? So I thought it was... It, I think it is his middle. I think you're right. Yeah. Yes. I believe that's correct. On one of his hands. So, we then, after a clever fake-out to seeing a classical version of a wizard in an old robe, as we might anticipate, meet Baez, the first of the Magi, bald pate, crop gray beard, and clearly an accomplished butcher sitting there on the sidelines as we walk through the rest of the town. He quickly approaches and dispatches for Kwai to be taken care of. Calder, one of the sons of Bethod, the king of the Northmen, arrives, and Baez notes the shared history with the king of the Northmen between both Logan and Calder. This rise to power. Yeah. Baez is fairly clearly 
intentionally unassuming. But if I had his station crossland, I would so, so heavily lean into the mysterious, powerful wizard persona. Like, I need to have a four-foot-long beard and... Like, in what circum? Okay, like just a big old, big old staff, ostentatious wizard hat, grumbling beard, dude. I I want to be Gandalf. It's mostly just what I want, and any self-respecting mage or wizard should want the same. So, boo on bias for kind of looking like a butchered dude. <laughs> he's, he's just hanging out. Maybe he's at a point in his life where he's just like, yeah, this is good. He's, he's always a been like that, though. It's, you know? it's carved in stone. He's got a statue. At 60? Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> I don't trust a wizard's age. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to trust it. All I mean is that, like, at 60, would you give a shit? Like, and then at... 360 would you give a shit <laughs> like, <laughs> i don't know everyone knows I feel like that I care about the quality of my pigs and hats are more powerful <laughs> love it love it what do you think about calder on the whole what was your what was your impression of him as we come to that conversation He's, son of bethod yeah he seems he seems even more entitled than Jazal does. He, he, <laughs> yeah. he seems pretty. Sure. He, he's got a he's got a chip on his shoulder for sure. Pretty happy with as is Baez. 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 Baez's Baez. decision to make him leave the rest of the men outside the gate. That was a pretty good move, I think. <laughs> this dude doesn't seem to be someone that should be trusted in any capacity, and I think he's going to fuck over. A lot of people. I don't know why. It just icky vibes. Icky vibes from Calder. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Coming to Calder in the conversation and like actual confrontation that happens with Baez. Baez refuses again to attend to Bethod at Carleon. And Calder pushing back against this seems to start to kind of choke. On his words, as Baez invokes Juvens being the only one capable of commanding Baez to do anything and his being dead. He also speaks a little bit later of magic leaking from the world, but that there are many ways to crack an egg despite this change in the world. Yeah, so this magic clearly seems elemental in nature, mm-hmm. and I think Baez recognizes that that's not entirely foreign to Logan. Um, so given that, Logan doesn't really seem particularly astonished by things that are happening here. But goddamn, do I want to see more of what this system is capable of? I'm assuming, I'm not, I don't know for sure, I, I have no reason to back this up, but I'm assuming... We're not going to get into the sort of crunch that we get into with the Mistborn series as far as the mechanics of the magic system go. Yeah, I'm curious. Using the term system makes me believe that you believe that it's a fully hard system. I don't believe Um, it's a... I mean, I believe that it's a hard system within that universe. It's just whether or not it's actually fleshed out to us. If that makes sense. Yeah, fair enough. 
I, I definitely understand. I guess my like core question is, is like what given given everything that you've experienced from Abercrombie now, do you think that that's a potential? Like, where do you think it's going to go as far as magic goes? Um, Logan refers to the spirit of the fire that it, that he mm-hmm. takes up. And that's kind of all I'm going on right now. It, it seems like there might be a a living entity to the to the elements that can be harnessed by certain people. I don't expect it to be like I expect it to be a fairly soft system from our perspective. Okay. Fair enough. And Baez on the whole. How are you feeling about him after this not Force choke, but like almost force choke. I mean, he kind of like <laughs> evacuated the air. As opposed from the to like guy. a choke, he removed the air, which is worse. <laughs> it's actually worse than a force choke. Yeah, seems pretty ruthless when he wants to be. Pretty cold. Yeah. I mean, we know that the King of the Northmen isn't a good guy. So like it's, you know. He could be fine. We only know him from the perspective of Logan, Baez, and West, as we get into later. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Logan knows him pretty intimately and had some choice words. True. But, you know, maybe his son likes him or something. (laughs) Maybe his kid is cool with him. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anything else on Baez to round out that chapter? Or Logan and Malachi Squire? Should I... Am I... Am I barking up the wrong tree altogether in even considering the mechanics of the magic being used like should i not put stock into it i would say let the text inform you like as as this goes you're you know you're in the first hundred pages right if if we even think about like green bone saga you got definition over time and things were defined gradually as it went on this might become apparent over time but okay. it's too early to give you any sort of philosophy. What, I, what I'll definitely give you is it's not as hard. Almost no magic system in most fiction is as hard as a Sanderson magic system. So don't expect that for sure. Mm. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. This is, as mentioned in episode zero, this is more akin to like the Lord of the Rings in some ways. Okay. So as a plan. Cool. Cool. With that out of the way, we move into the final chapter of the week, The Good Man. And now, to the newest and last POV, Major West. We come to the Chamberlain's office and sort of this presentation of ceremony, wherein, very reminiscent of the Emperor's New Groove, where they're all approaching and kind of asking for, like, what they need from a sort of feudal perspective and what they like what they're looking for in some cases it's accusations against the crown in some cases it's accusations against other in some cases it's we're going through like a terrible drought as a as a group of people and we need like assistance and all of them are met with this sort of egregious backhand stonewalling asshole that is hoff lord chamberlain hoff and it's just awful while west has to sit there and guard the man while he decides whether or not is worth the king's time to chat with this prattling mob as he might decree them to be and that's just sort of despicable in a lot of ways and west agrees inside of his own monologue Mm -hmm. yeah 
he's such a dick the whole time. Yeah. I really, I really appreciated West's grumbling interjections that got taken as agreements by what's his name, Hoff. But yeah, remember. From from all the characters, I most closely associate with West. Like, it just it's like kind of the stand-in for an everyman that's like a middle achiever, right? Like. Mm-hmm. He's there. He's doing the thing. He's a peasant. He made it there. It's impressive. But, you know, still. Yeah. But there is a lot of these things that are put off until we reach Magister Cult. In that case, it it does change a little bit in the way that he finally reacts therein. Which one was Cult again? Cult is the... So the initial guy is... Immediately put off, and he is sent out, and then, like, Weather it, weather or something other, Weatherton, I think is the guy's name. Colt is the Magister of the Guild of Mercers, and so he is basically falsely accusing them of, not falsely, correctly accusing them, I should say. Yeah, he's <laughs> of, got it pretty spot on. <laughs> of, of sort of the, the whole deception that's going on with the Inquisition, and it's not correct. It's not the correct forum, potentially, for him to have breached that. Okay. Which is to say bureaucracy as opposed to truth. Yeah. Hey, Glockta lives to see another day. I guess. (laughs) The complaint won't take him down this time. Another bowl of porridge. (laughs) Glockta lives to see another bowl of porridge. Yeah. Unfortunately. But then shortly thereafter. Yeah, unfortunately for him and for everyone else. (laughs) But then the diplomats arrive and the mood shifts as the Northmen enter the room. Fenris the Feared enters, this massive hulk of a man, giant and terrifying, with White Eye Hensul as his translator. There's a little bit of terror in the air as they depart, planning to visit the Open Council tomorrow, having handed over this expectation of giving them a gift and giving the king, the drooling king, as we understand to be, a gift. Yeah, Fenris here feels like a solid pick for that Creatures from the other side, a reference from the first law. We'll we'll see if that comes to pass. But this dude's bigger than me. <laughs> like this is a big person, or not person potentially. I I have a coworker who's six ten, and haven't met him yet. I meet him on Thursday this week, and that is horrifying to me <laughs> in concept in conceit. Um, which Fenris just seems worse, like crazier, bigger, more intimidating. That massive cloak that billows as he walks, like there's a whole thing there. Maybe he's multiple people stacked on top of each other in a trench coat. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's possible. Definitely possible. More than likely. Mm. Oh man, what a terrifying arrangement that is. But then we continue to the unassuming Yoru Selfer, a man with heterochromia, mismatching eye colors, from the Order of the Magi in understudy of Baez's. And he goes from seemingly the joke of the meeting here, being let in as the magus, the trickster, supposed to do like a little show for Lord Hoff, into being taken very seriously as standard an envelope that seems to call in and send out messages to the rest of the immediate, the closed council 
just immediately without any sort of pause or refrain. It goes from a, a joke to the most serious we have ever seen anyone be in the entirety of the union thus far. Yeah. Uh, you know, West has had a pretty boring, hot, sweaty day. Yeah. Like all day he's been sitting in the in these meetings and uh, none of them have panned out. But these last two, last two are actually interesting. Mm-hmm. And maybe that means he has a story to tell. Maybe that means he feels like the entire day wasn't total wash. So you know what? At least the end of the day was exciting. Sometimes the way that's the way it do be. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what's on that letter from Baez. I mean, obviously, I mean, it says he's coming. He's on his way back. Yeah. Do they want him to come? He's here to. He's coming to show up. That'll be yeah. a question. No one wants him to show up. Who would want him to show up? He's an old, crotchety you know. old butcher man. Doesn't yeah. even have a fucking beard. Doesn't even have a fucking beard. Not a real beard. Not a wizard beard. It's just close cropped. It's tight, PJ. It's a tight beard, as it appears. You should have a wizard gray beard. white. Hmm. Yeah, we've got different opinions on wizard beards, but I appreciate your your thought. So we return then to the very end of this this moment, the ceremony. We've spent a lot of time in the good man's perspective and he's been doing good things he's been advocating quietly despite being seeing and witnessing despicable things over the course of a day he actively walks out into the hall after everyone else has departed and sees good man heath of whom was the first person that we see among the group that we saw inside of this chapter of whom is just pursuing for the benefit of his community he wakes him up and takes care of this member of the fellow peasant class giving him a small purse of gold and a promise of a discussion with someone on the farming commission to help benefit his community. That's a great thing to see. Really wonderful sort of way to end this kind of nightmare of a, of a day. (laughs) It's not a total wash. Yeah. It just, it gives him something to like look forward to, to some degree. So and like he feels like he helped and was impactful so mm-hmm. there's a lot of that here so that's it that's it pj what do you think of of the first week any other notes anything we missed anything we we should record more often so i can keep reading this book agreed we're aiming for that february is busy but after that we'll yeah. be okay I am like genuinely really curious what people think of these format changes that we've uh, implemented. I'm yeah. seriously, if you have any any comments, even just like, hey, I like it, keep it as it is comments, like send it on in. We want we, yeah, want, let it, us we know. want feedback. We're we're making Definitely. these changes because we think it'll serve everybody better. If that turns out to not be the case, we can we can make more changes. So yeah, I'm. I'm pretty. Are up we on spending it. too much it, time? I think it feels good. Yeah, I think so too. I think we were able to cover a lot more, more effectively, and in a similar time frame. Like we're right now recording time two forty, which is less than almost every episode that we've done with Dark Age or with Lightbringer, and that's pre cuts and other things that we'll clean out. So right. I, I feel, 
I feel good about this format. I feel good about what we covered. But uh, we're curious, of course. So send us an email at wordswhiskeyshow at gmail.com. Uh, you can also contact us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. Instagram, you know, check us out there and get an idea. Message us, you know, words whiskey show. So. Yeah. Other than that, next week we read chapter on the list through the end of part one, which is through tea and vengeance. This book, PJ, only has two parts. We're doing it in six episodes, but it only has two parts. So mm. part one going to be done now. All right. So, yeah. Good to know. <laughs> so on the list through the end of tea and vengeance through the end of part one. With that, we'll see you next week. But if you don't leave us a five-star review, I'm going to have to turn PJ's, the end of PJ's fingers into little sushi rolls. No one wants that. No one wants that. Especially I don't. But Crossland doesn't either because then I can't help with notes. Very true. Yeah, keep my fingers, guys. Help us out. So we'll see you next week. Elbows up? Is did you say elbows up? No, I said oh help me out. <laughs> oh help me out. <laughs> he said elbows up and I was like, what? El- elbows <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. See you next week. Thanks. Bye.